you don't get to call yourself a leader. We often conflate being in charge with leader. Other people designate you a leader, which means leadership is a behavior, it's not a position, okay? You can be in charge, but other people will decide whether or not you are their leader. One of the most important attributes that we can all focus on in 2021 is open-mindedness. The closed mind is not driven because the closed mind is certain and certain minds aren't curious and they're not seeking what's next. They aren't seeking what could be. And if 2020 taught us anything is that we don't know, you know, we don't know what's coming down the pike, uh, but we are all here. We're all operating, you know, we're all in our lives. Uh, admittedly, some, some of us might be in, in worse positions than we were at the beginning of 2020, but sometimes you get thrown down the hill. And when you stand up and dust yourself off, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm way further down than I was before. I got to climb again. But the fact is you can do it. I think if we are effectively able to understand and dissect the lessons 2020 taught each one of us individually, uh, we are all in a position where we can crush 2021. I really believe that. I really do. Because we've been through some stuff that historically is so unique, you know, and that's that's something to be, that's something to just give ourselves a quick pat on the back for. My name is Rich Devinney, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Well, it's official. 2020 is in the rear view. 2021 is finally upon us. So let us come correct. By continuing what has become a bit of a tradition here on the podcast, kicking off the new year with some bankable life guidance, courtesy of a Navy SEAL. In 2018 and 2019, our New Year's messenger was Mr. David Goggins, 2020 launched with Chad Wright, another SEAL turned ultra marathoner. And today brings us Rich Devinney a former Navy SEAL commander who served in what I think most would agree was the most badass, elite and secretive group in the armed forces. A team I've been cautioned to uh, not name publicly, but one I suspect you could quickly surmise. This conversation is a must listen for anyone looking to sharpen their grit, their mental acuity and resilience as we Embrace 2021. And it's all coming up, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. 
from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Okay. 
Commander Rich Divini. I think it's fair to say that if you spend 21 years as a Navy SEAL, including 13 overseas deployments, that you're, uh, you're gonna pick up a thing or two. But Divini's thing isn't about woo-ha or physical prowess and instead is really much more about things like mindset and disposition. It's a perspective that evolved out of his role in selecting highly trained soldiers for elite teams. In the course of that, he became obsessed with why some succeed and others flame out. In other words, what actually dictates human performance under stress. And ultimately what he discovered almost ironically is that that equation had very little to do with physicality or, or even skill for that matter. And instead had everything to do with the individual's core attributes, things like resilience, mental acuity, perseverance, and drive. He's got a new book coming out all about it. It's called The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. It hits bookstores January 26. And today we break it all down. It is worth mentioning before we get into it that Rich will be doing a live event with podcast favorite, Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's also giving away the Courage chapter for free. And those two things are available for everybody who pre-orders the book. And all the information on that can be found on the book's website at theattributes.com. Rich is fascinating. His work is highly instructive. And I just can't think of a better, more impactful conversation to hearken in 2021. So let's do it. This is me and Rich Divini. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm excited about this. We uh, have a little bit of a tradition that we started a couple of years ago on the podcast where we kick off the new year with a Navy SEAL. People seem to enjoy yeah, that. Yep. It started with David Goggins a couple of years ago. Uh, we had Chad Wright last year. Um, and you're gonna be the 2021 edition. So. I am, I am, I'm deeply honored, yeah, so thank you. Thank you, you yeah, for, so. for doing this. And, and what's interesting about you among many other, many things, but um, you know, when you think of Navy SEALs in this modern culture context, we think about the movies, we think about people like Jocko Willink, who's sort of this emblem of leadership. We think of David Goggins, who's kind of this emblem of physical and mental discipline very alpha type personalities, but you're coming from a more uh, analytical pose, somebody who's much more interested in the mental game versus the physical game. And you know, given your experience and your stature in the, the special ops ecosystem, you know, somebody who's spent 21 years in the military as a Navy SEAL, 13 overseas deployments, serving as commanding officer of a hereafter to be unnamed elite force within the SEALs. Uh, you have a tremendous amount of experience. Um, and, it, and it leads me, you know, your perspective, which we're gonna get into, leads me to conclude that perhaps this popular conception that we have about the Navy SEALs is a little bit misled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're, well, you're absolutely right. And I think that's, it's for two reasons, I guess. First is, you know, you have to, you know, pop culture has to, has to entertain for, first mm -hmm. and foremost. And so, uh, so any type of story has to highlight the high highs and the low lows if you're gonna right. have drama. Um, and life, no matter what endeavor you're in, is never just high high and low low. I mean, a lot of 
uh, a lot of seal life is decidedly normal. I remember, yeah. you know, you know, I remember, you know, having family or or even even um, special guests who want to come visit the SEAL teams when I was in the SEAL teams and they uh -huh. come and, I, and, and they'd be walking around the teams and I'd be like, hey, you probably expected to see parachutes everywhere and guns and, <laughs> and all this exciting stuff. And yeah. you know, that's, that's not the case. This is just a bunch of buildings. This is where we work. A lot of our training is uh -huh. offsite in, in remote areas. Um, and I guess I've, I've never watched a, a movie get made um, other than you know, on the periphery, I've seen some movie sets, mm -hmm. but I would imagine I, from what I know about the experience, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, the movie making process is decidedly slow and boring for most of it. Uh, right. You're just looking for that one minute shot, right? And I think that uh, that's what happens in kind of seal movies and even seal books to the, to the extent mm. that they are. Is you're, you're recounting the high highs and the low lows and, and it's more normal than right. that, you know. Yeah, you think you're gonna see guys pounding their chest and you know doing hill repeats and yeah. all kinds of crazy yeah. stuff. But part of the whole thing is to bleed into society, right? There's an invisibility yeah. aspect to it. Like you're you're meant to kind of disappear into the background. Absolutely. And, and you know, again, SEALs are humans, you know, and so I so one of the things that I'm fascinated with and has have always been fascinated with is the this idea that, you know, we were all we all consider ourselves fairly average dudes who just happened to go down an extraordinary path. So operating in that path, what are those things that make someone be able to do that mm -hmm. uh, and, and do the job consistently, do it well? And how does that separate from other people? Because you know everybody has, has competencies. Uh, everybody's a rock star in certain contexts of life and a, and a doofus in other contexts of mm -hmm. life. There, there are many contexts in life where I am a doofus, you know? Yeah. And so, um, and you look at like professional athletes and you say, you know, LeBron James, you know, is is a master on the basketball court. I'm sure he would tell you, at least Put ten, him in a yeah, pool. At, well, at least ten yeah. different contexts inside of which he is a complete doofus, and he'd probably be the first to admit. It's like, no, no, that's I'm bad at that, right? So, uh -huh. uh, so I think it's I've been fascinated with what are those aspects that allow humans to understand their own potential, their own performance, and then if they understand it enough, pick the right path. Sometimes consciously, in my yeah. case, in many cases of team guys, unconsciously, because we just found ourselves wanted to do it and going there and making it through at young ages. So, you know, not very self-aware at that point in your life. Right, well, most people aren't, right? That's we're exactly we're right. sort of, yeah. you know, reacting impulsively to, you know, unconscious drivers until right. we reach a certain level of maturity where things are either working or not working, where we engage in that process of evaluation to try to understand what those drivers are, exactly. which is really kind of the core of your work. But um, you said something interesting, which was that, you and the seals would consider themselves to be average people who've put themselves in, you know, an extraordinary situation in which to excel and grow. But it takes a certain type of individual to sign up for something like that. Like when you talk about the drivers that would compel somebody to say, that's the life that I wanna pursue for myself. I agree, but I'd also say that it also takes a certain mentality for someone to wanna be a surgeon, you mm -hmm. know, or, um, an athlete or a, a teacher or you know any profession you know the, I I really honor and respect and I think I think this is one of the things I really enjoyed about the teams was that uh, the the majority of of the guys respected hard work and purpose mm -hmm. and movement and so there was very little ego around people who really did their job well I mean the janitors at our commands who did awesome jobs. Awesome people. There was and there was no judgment. There was no putting oneself above uh, above others because you 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 really honor and respect someone's purpose, dedication, and hard work. Uh -huh. What you start to 
have trouble with is when you see, you know, apathy or, um, you know, misdirection, you know, pe- people who just aren't on the path, they don't really want, there's no drive. I mean, I think that's, and again, I say, I say, you know, have an issue with, you just, you don't resonate with those people as much. And yeah. so anybody who's picked a path and pursued it and done it with deliberacy and consistency and integrity and, uh, and I say I would say success, but not even success. As long as they've pursued it, there's respect there. Um, mm. uh, in terms of the seal, uh, the seal pathway, I, I would certainly think that there are commonalities amongst the guys who want to do it. And I think the process to get to buds in the first place is certainly difficult. So mm-hmm. I always I always used to say, hey, part of the selection process for buds is getting there in the first place. You know, that's yeah. the first part because there's a lot of guys. You 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 always meet a bunch of you know a bunch. You always meet guys who who say, oh yeah, I I, I always wanted to be a seal. You know, I just ah, this I did this and then that and, that, and this happened. Right. And, you, and in the back of your mind, it's like, okay, well, that's you got deselected. You, you know, that's, yeah, that <laughs> yeah. was a, that was one of the things that happened, right? You, you, you never you, you never you pursued, deselected yourself. You deselected yourself. You right. never pursued it to the to the to day one on uh-huh. the beaches of of Coronado, um, right? And then and then let the buds process then throw you into massive you know right uh, challenge. And even in that context. Um, People are deselecting themselves. It's it's rare that somebody gets tossed out, right? Like people are just opting out to quit. It is rare. Yeah, it, it happens. I mean, and 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 the, and the, and I would I would actually say that the, the the process has matured and evolved over the years. I mean, I went through in in '96, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's matured and evolved over the years to do better at at, desele- at deliberately deselecting those who might not fit the mold because. Again, as the as the communities gain popularity, the uh, the reasons for which guys have come in have shifted. And you mm-hmm. and I had a little bit of a conversation about this before we came on. But um, in the mid '90s, you know, very few people knew what Navy SEALs were. When, mm-hmm. when me and my all my buddies joined, we all wanted to be kind of badasses, invisible warriors. We like the water or whatever. Um, and then the war started, and and suddenly the spec ops holistically, and the military, but spec ops who would who was doing a lot of the the bulk of the initial work, uh, at least hunting down bad guys. Uh, the you know suddenly these kids who are seeing that they're like, oh wait, that right. the, the, the reasons change. I want to go do that. I want to I want to you know the, the the towers come down, and hey, I want to go serve my country, mm-hmm. and that's another reason. Uh, and again, there's no both are honorable. They're just different, right? Mm-hmm. There's no judgment on these reasons. Um, and then of course as um, Spec Ops and the SEALs in particular gain uh, popularity. And we're kind of like, oh my gosh, right. now we're visible. Uh, the, the, you, you, can, you know that the reasons are changing, changing again. You sure. know, why are guys joining? So the community has done a really good job at starting to identify what those attributes, specifically, okay, what are the attributes we're really looking for? Um, and how do we accurately assess those and pick the right people? And it's not just the guy who can make it through uh, hell week, and not just a guy who uh-huh. can run with a telephone pole. It, it's there would be more, you know, integrity and 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 character and things like that, and right. and ethos and those guys. And and so I think they've, they, I've, it's been very impressive to see uh, them them make that evolution. Yeah, all the conversation seems to be around buds, but it's mm-hmm. so much more than that. It is. It is. I mean, you know. So I always joke, uh, and this is kind of the, how I started thinking about the work. Um, in in buds and hell week specifically, but um, you, you you carry telephone poles around. You know you PT with telephone poles, uh-huh. like 200, 300 pounds. You carry boats on your head, which are like another. Right. Who's going to carry the boat? Yeah, I mean you do this thing. You sit in cold water for <laughs> yeah. what seems like hours and freeze. You know, um, 
I have done and been on hundreds of missions, real-world combat missions, and I always joke that never on one did I carry a telephone pole mm-hmm. or have a boat on my head, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> and so what, you know, what this tells- Probably some cold water though. It was some cold water, yes, yeah. I, will, I will admit that. Um, what this tells us and told me as I started to think about uh, this attributes research is that, is that the, what we were doing in, in BUDS, it's like they call it SEAL training, but it mm-hmm. really wasn't training as much as it was assessment and selection. And what they mm-hmm. were doing is they were, they were trying to tease out, they were assessing attributes. What was it about grinding through that telephone pole PT that allowed someone to make it through? What mm-hmm. was it about carrying that boat on your head? What was it about going through Hell Week where it's five days and you sleep for three hours, right? Yeah. What was it about that? It wasn't the actually, you weren't training to carry a boat on your head. You weren't training to stay up that long, um, you were you were basically seeing if guys had the ability to move through and continue to perform, and I think right. and that's that starts to speak to attributes. Yeah, it's a it, it elucid it shines a spotlight on these attributes and you know where which attributes these individuals are excelling and where they're weak. But what you've done is really canonized that, like evaluated evaluated it and and distilled it down into like these principles that you share in the book and and the program that you that is now like the doctrine for how you screen people and evaluate who are the best candidates. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that because because my goal was not to write another seal book. I, I never wanted to do that and of course I was in the teams when I saw that happening. Um, mm-hmm. and really what I wanted to what I've always really been in, in, interested in is is asking the question, what are those things that I experienced um, that I can draw out and ubiquitize really for 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 people and mm-hmm. and just here's an example. I mean, yeah. So so you go through buds. One of the ways you, the way you quit buds is you ring the bell. You know, it's called ringing right. the bell, right? Um, and a lot of guys do. Uh, but the way I'll, the example I'll give you is that is is 2020. I mean, you know. So I say in 2020, um, all of us were thrown into deep challenge, stress, and uncertainty. And just take COVID as one of those many examples mm-hmm. of 2020 where we were all thrown into deep challenge, stress, and uncertainty. Um, the difference between 2020 and BUDS is none of us volunteered to be there. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and right. none of us had a bell that we could ring to get out of it. We were all thrown into this, which meant we actually all got a crash course in our, crash course in our attributes during mm-hmm. 2020, we, we all have. So we've all, we, we, we all, we all came to the end of a year where we've learned a lot about ourselves and now have the ability, if we have the understanding, to to capitalize on that knowledge and excel in 2021. Because we, mm-hmm. we can use that information as we start 2021. Because none of us can say how 2021 is going to go either. Um, and all of us are a little shell shocked from 2020. So, yeah. so how do we then say, how do we then take those things and say how do we what do we do to use this to my advantage to perform? If I know that I'm a little less on adaptability than I am on resilience, or or I'm higher on uh, discipline that I am on, you know, you know, you name your attribute. Right. You know, there's ways to do that. Right. So traditionally, we've thought of this through the lens of skills. What is your skill set, and how do we plug you and your skill set into the right lane so that you can excel? And you've really upended this to say skills are important, but skills are trainable. Attributes are, you know, to use the the, the description that you use in the book are like your code, your mm-hmm. computer code, and they're kind of baked in and they can be developed, they can be enhanced, but essentially you kind of come out who you are, right? Yeah. And the process of figuring out which lane to plug you into is a function of evaluating all of these attributes that you have, where you're weak, where you're strong, um, and then selecting for those strengths. 
Is yes. That, is that accurate? That is accurate. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, again, the, the skills, is a, uh, skills are and always have been a, a valuable and necessary measure of performance. Um, and, um, and as we, as we kind of, we can look at the evolution of the workplace um, and evolution of factories and the industrial um, complex, the ability to manage and run machinery uh, were skills that workers needed. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, so companies began to train people to do that, and your ability to do that effectively, efficiently, and competently mm-hmm. was a measure of your skill. Uh, so, they actually developed classrooms inside the factories to teach people this stuff. Um, so, it's it's always been any that go all the way back to you know you know uh, prehistoric man. You know, I mean, the the ability to throw a spear and hit the target was a was a valuable skill. No one really yeah. cared how much empathy you had doing it. You know, so um, so skills always have been important. The problem with looking at just skills is they're seductive and they don't tell the whole story. Skills are uh, are not inherent to our nature, um, so we learn them. You know, we can we learn them or can be taught them or actually can learn them just by nature of doing a task. Just our you know you and I looking at a com- or working on a computer for week after week, we'll we'll learn how to type. Right, skills can mm-hmm. be absorbed that way. So they can be taught, they can be learned that way. Uh, they're not inherent to our nature, uh, be- and they and they direct behavior in certain situations. Right. So so here's how to type. A paper. Here's how to ride a bike. Here's how to throw a ball. Here's what to do and the skill uh, and, and the skill to do it. Right. right. Therefore, they can be measured and tested and assessed very easily. They're very visible. You can see how well someone throws a ball, how well someone rides a bike. Um, to that end, they become very seductive assessment and hiring tools because you can see the number. You can see the sales guy's number. You can see right. um, how well someone does the, uh, is a, you can see the graphic designer's performance of that. Um, you can see how well someone shoots or, or runs, how well someone, how, how in shape someone is, how well someone is, uh, is, uh, runs, runs the three mile run, right? Uh-huh. At, at, a, at a spec ops camp. Um, the problem is it doesn't tell us what happens in uncertainty, when, right. when everything goes sideways, when the environment is so unknown and uncertain that you don't know what skill to apply. And this is where we start talking about attributes. Right. Attribute, attributes are inherent. Um, we're born with them. Now, we, can, we certainly develop them over time, um, but they've seen levels, you can see, those of us as parents, we can see levels of perseverance or adaptability in young kids, uh-huh. in young, almost, well, I would say infants, but as soon as they start crawling, you can see these things, you know? So they're, they're inherent to our nature. Um, they they inform behavior rather than they direct behavior. So they tell us how we're going to show up when we're in a situation. So my right. levels or my son's levels of adaptability and perseverance and resiliency, for example, told me how well he was going to manage riding a bike when he fell when he fell off of it ten mm-hmm. times in a row. Mm-hmm. So they inform behavior. As such, they're hard to assess, measure, and test because you yeah. can't see them. You you, yeah. you almost and so the the, the most visceral visible place that you see them is in times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress, which makes special operations training or assessment and selection such a great environment and such a great laboratory inside of which you tease these out because it's all about challenge and stress. Right. I mean, BUDS takes you down to zero. It doesn't matter if you're a star athlete. It doesn't matter if you're the, uh, the alma mater or you know smartest person. It doesn't matter where you came from. You will go down to zero. And the question mm-hmm. is, where, you know, how do you show up? What do you up? do then? What, what right. do you do then? Yeah, right. yeah. And it's that high stress environment uh, that basically reveals the default settings on that individual, exactly right? Because right. you, don't, you don't default to your skill set, you default to your core attributes. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right. And then the only caveat is I, call, I talk about briefly, albeit dormant attributes. The dormant attributes are those attributes that you have, but you don't know you have. Uh-huh. Um, and, you, and, and you don't know you have them. And, and you can have a dormant attribute all the way 
through you know late adulthood, it really depends on whether or not there's been a situation that has teased that out of you. Mm. You know, this could be the uh, the, uh, the the par- the the person who thinks that they're um, uh, uh, who thinks they're impatient, right? And then they have kids, and they realize, oh wait a second, I'm actually a pretty patient person, right? <laughs> right? Because they didn't because, real- yeah, yeah, they would have they, they would have character they would have mischaracterized. That's themselves. exactly right. So I would I would maintain that any story in our lives, and I think every one of us has a story that that ends with I didn't know I had it in me is an example of an attribute coming to the fore right. that they didn't know they had. So that's dormant attributes. So there are attributes that we might have that we don't know we have just because we hadn't put ourselves in those situations, mm-hmm. which is what one of the things I loved about going to Buds. You know, you know, I loved, I actually loved Buds. I mean, it was tough, but I loved it. And I loved it because of the purity of the system. It didn't care who you were, where you were from. And it just, ta- it, it taught you so much about yourself. So right. you came out of that, oh my gosh, yeah, okay, right. I got it. Right, well, any, I mean, the thing is, we're all aware of things like grit and perseverance and resilience, in, but it's kind of an ephemeral thing, right? Like you were saying, like, how do you actually calculate these things and identify them? I mean, any employer or executive who's hiring people who's successful at it will tell you, like, I don't hire for skills, I hire for you know their disposition or yeah, whatever, but yeah. that's kind of an intuitive thing. Like, I get a feeling when I'm with this person, I feel like they're somebody who's gonna show up for me or they mm-hmm. have the right, you know, level of humility or whatever it is that they're sourcing for, but there's no rubric for that, no, right? Which is not. really what you've done. And you did it by dint of, you know, realizing that this was important. I mean, you opened the book with this story of like this experienced SEAL, I think he had like eight years, right? Who yeah, was yeah. having an issue with this very specific um, like mission training that you were doing where he, despite being very good on paper, he just couldn't, figure out how to excel in that environment. And that led you, I mean, I want you to explain that, but that kind of led you into thinking more deeply about why this was, why these things weren't matching up in the way that you thought perhaps they should. Yeah, I, yes, I was, uh, I had the, the privilege of, of running training, assessment and selection and training uh, for one of our really specialized SEAL commands. And at this particular command, we would take experienced operators from other commands and they'd apply to our command. And we put those guys through our own selection process. So you're talking about guys who have between five and 10 years of experience already in the team, successful mm-hmm. dudes. And we were getting about a 50% attrition rate. Um, and and you know that, that happens, right? But the problem was, and, my, and when I took over my CEO, it said, hey, we need to do better articulating why guys aren't making it through. Because the best explanation a lot of times was, well, you could, you didn't cut it. You couldn't do this right, or you couldn't do that right. right. And, um, but what does that mean? What does that mean? And it was leaving a sour taste in our mouths because we weren't explaining it properly. It was leaving a sour taste in the in the candidates' mouth because they just they came from this position of, hey, I thought I was doing great. I got accepted for this thing. Now they're telling me I'm I'm not good enough. What the heck, right? And so they asked me to look at it. And so that's what took me back. And I began to look really at the foundation, the, the origins of, of the UDT, the underwater demolition mm-hmm. teams and Draper Kaufman. And mm-hmm. this idea that, you know, before the allied invasion, they realized that they needed to have t- a teams of dudes swim uh, swim ashore, measure, basically measure depths, identify obstacles and, and blow them up, blow paths clear if necessary. And so they tapped this guy, Draper Kaufman, who had run a, uh, who had put together an ordinance, uh, uh, explosive ordinance school a few years prior, said, hey, can you create this unit? And mm-hmm. Kaufman knew that he he needed guys, you know, he already had, it was interesting, he, he, had, he had 
run of an explosive school. So he already had at his disposal, a bunch of guys who knew how to do the job, mm -hmm. right? Who knew how to tie demolition on obstacles and, and swim and do whatever that is. Mm -hmm. What he recognized he needed was to figure out who could do the job because these guys would be swimming into heavily defended beaches with only you know a knife and some explosives, right? And swim trunks. They'd have to adapt on the fly. They'd have to figure out what was going on. The environments would change, it'd get ugly. So I call it kind of a, a, a unconscious genius. And he mm -hmm. said, well, I'm gonna start my training with a week of the most difficult things I can imagine. And so he, he started training with, you know, what is now Hell Week. And basically he ran guys through the gambit of simula you know, combat simulations, explosives, some problem solving, things like that. But it was really just very grueling. The guys slept for only a couple mm -hmm. hours. Um, is and this back when it was the Frogman? That's, that's exactly yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and he basically didn't run any testing or evaluation during that process. The, the, the decision to stay or go arrested on the candidate, would he stay or would he quit you know, in that environment? Mm -hmm. And of course, many quit, it was about a 90% attrition rate. Um, but what he knew at that point is he had, he had that 10% of people who he knew could make it through when things went completely sideways, when things got so bad that all you had was yourself, maybe your your teammate, and and that was the initiation mm -hmm. of the original underwater demolition, the UDT, and of course that training evolved, and that Hell, hell Week still is the is the crucible for buds. It's now right. the fifth week instead of the first, but um, but what he was doing was he was looking for attributes. Mm -hmm. He was looking for guys who could do the job, not yeah. how knew, not knew how. You know, yeah, that difference between how to do it and can do it mm -hmm. is a pretty wide gap, right? It absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. within that lies this great mystery. Like what is the path from from, you know, how to could to can, right? And right. and how do you how do you like pin that down and create a structure around it yeah. rather than just, well, he's got he's got what it takes. Like what does that mean? Well, I think right. part of the process is to reverse it. It needs to go mm -hmm. from could to how. So in other words, if, right. you, if you have the attributes, so, so our whole philosophy became, hey, as long as a guy has the attributes we're looking for, we can teach them how. We can teach, we can teach a guy how to shoot. We can teach a guy how to skydive. Mm -hmm. Now, competence certainly matters. So you, there needs to be a baseline. Um, but, but what I tell uh, people who ask me and organizations who ask me about uh, hiring people, I say, well, first look at the context. You know, so, so what, What's the team? What, you know, because because the set of attributes that you need to be a Navy SEAL is going to be different than the set that you need to be a an HR person or a sales right. salesperson. So what are the, what's the list of attributes that you think you need that are predominant in this type of environment? Start with that, and then if you if you find some, so learnability might be one of those things. Hey, we mm -hmm. need someone with high learnability, right? If someone has high learnability, has high on the, all four of the mental acuity, you're going to be able to teach them pretty much anything you need to teach them. They can learn almost any skill, you know, and and pick it up pretty quickly, right? So. So we began to reverse that process and say, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna still train because because training, by the way, is a great environment inside of which you can tease out attributes if you put challenge and stress, if you implement challenge and stress. Mm -hmm. So you get you almost call you almost get periphery training, um, and then the process we were running, I called it like we're training we're, we're we're training for the periphery, right? We're we're actually we're we're assessing attributes, but in the in this at the same time, they're learning critical skills that they need to know yeah. to, to do this job. And and I think I think teams and businesses can do, can do the same thing. It just it takes some 
some diligence of thought and and it's subjective to the team right. and the uh, and the individual or whatever you're looking for. So how did you begin the process of deconstructing this to identify what these attributes are? Because you've come up with this list and you go through them in the book, but you had to arrive at these as being the critical ones. Absolutely. Uh, well, so so this started when I was when I was running training. So the first thing I did was I I created basically small groups around the command uh, of five or five or ten guys, and I said, hey, write down, make a list of what you think the the key attributes we're looking for are. And I try to give a quick explanation of what an attribute, what an was, attribute right? is. But yeah, inevitably the that. list is going to come up with both skills and attributes on it because they get conflated right. quite a bit. But I did that first. And so we got a we so we we got all those lists. We had something like a hundred or so things. And uh obviously Called the skill off the, all the skills. Okay, that doesn't and put it aside because we know those. Um, and then and then we, we looked where some attributes were similar to other attributes mm-hmm. and came up with a list at the time of thirty six uh, attributes. And that was the list we basically said, okay, this is what we're going to use. When I began to when I got out of the navy and I began to talk to businesses and thinking about this more deeply and more openly, you know, outside the genre of just special operations, I said to myself, okay. What is it? What are those attributes we need to start looking at? And I began to think about performance. And this is where I really started. And this is so. So Andrew Huberman, great friend of mine, yeah. um, and I know you know him. He says hello. All roads lead to Andrew Huberman. <laughs> don't, don't Every they? guest that I have on this podcast has some sort of entanglement with Andrew. He's Huberman. A, yeah, he's a popular guy, right? So um, <laughs> yeah. uh, he says hello. You know, I'm yeah, actually staying awesome. in this place right now. But oh, cool. um, but uh, he and I met um, right after I got out of the, uh, the military. And we were at this peak performance thing where we were kind of helping think about ways to to help executives and CEOs perform at their peak. Pretty good. Got David Goggins was there, so he and I got uh-huh. to visit, right? So, uh, so, so we, but we, we Andrew, Andrew and I kind of synergized because we both started talking. And what we realized is that neither of us liked nor were that interested in peak performance. Mm-hmm. And the reason was because, and and it's funny because most people say, "You are you seals? You guys are the." Most you guys are the best peak performers out there. I mean, you know the secrets of peak performance, and I used to disagree with them. I didn't know exactly why at the time, but it didn't feel right. Uh, and but as I started talking to Andrew, he and I kind of figured it out. And the reason is because peak is an apex. Uh, it's an apex from which we can only come down. And peak often, in most cases, has to be prepared for, has to be scheduled, mm-hmm. has to be you have to you have to uh, it has to be routinized. You have to have a routine to get there. And so so the example is the professional football player prepares, you know, spends his entire week preparing to peak on Sunday for three right. hours. That's what or happens. Or the Olympic athlete. Or the Olympic athletes, yeah. Decades getting ready for that That's one exactly day. right. We realized we were interested in optimal performance and optimal performance is something different. Optimal performance is how can I do the very best I can in the moment, whatever that best looks like. What is my best and how can I do it? Um, sometimes your best is peak. Sometimes that's flow states and all that stuff. Sometimes it's your head down and you're taking step by step and that's mm-hmm. all you're doing. It's minute by minute, it's moment by moment. And, and it kind of hit me like when I was freezing in the surf zone in SEAL training, there was nothing peak about my performance. <laughs> you know, I was doing the best <laughs> yeah. I could and the best I could was not yeah. to quit at the time, you know? Um, but this is where like, this is where you and I have synergy. You know, ultra athletes I think have this mentality. I mean, when you're an ultra athlete or a triathlete or whatever, when these races are so long that the, at the end of them, you don't really even want to think about the end of them because it's too far away. You have to begin to learn how to chunk your environment in ways to perform. And I would, I would maintain, I'm not gonna say this for certain, but tell me if I'm wrong. I would guess that there are points during your race where you don't feel like you're peak at all. 
Um, oh, not at all. And you also know going into it that it's not gonna go smoothly. That's exactly like You're right. gonna be met with unforeseen obstacles and variables that are gonna come up that are not part of the plan at all. And it's about how you respond in the moment to those things that you couldn't have prepared for. That's exactly right. And guess what that sounds like? Life. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that is life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we as life, you know, and you know, the, in 2020 life- 2020 in particular. 2020 right? in particular, yeah. right? I mean, but life every day, we, we, we get out of bed and we, there's, some, there's some predictability, but ultimately we don't know. I mean, things are going to happen um, to, to make an assumption or even expect oneself to perform at peak all the time, all mm-hmm. day is both unrealistic and probably irresponsible from a health perspective. Uh, there, there has to be a modulation and optimal performance is that modulation. So, so the, the idea was, okay, when I think about attributes, what do I believe when I look at this kind of uh, collection of experience and research are the attributes for optimal performance? What are those things that actually help us do the best we can in the moment? Um, again, sometimes that's peak. Peak's awesome when you mm-hmm. get there, and if you can plan for it, that's great too. Um, and I would recommend anybody who can plan for it. If you're if you're a salesperson or a presenter in a business, if you have a sales presentation, plan to peak <laughs> during right. that presentation. Right, nothing wrong with that at all. The more you can control those variables, the more you can set yourself up for peak versus optimal. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you can and and if you are and and so Andrew and I really are of the belief that if if you can optimally perform consistently that's actually true confidence because you know that no matter what hits, you'll find a way, you'll mm-hmm. get through it. It may not be pretty, mm-hmm. <laughs> it may be dirty, ugly and, and But painful. you also can't hold yourself to the standard of peak performance, right? Like you have, to, you, have to, you have to provide some bandwidth to understand like, I'm not gonna be at my peak, it's not about that. So you let yourself off that hook a little bit. Yeah, right? yeah, and you're prepared to, and this, this goes for, so I think it's funny, I was, uh, I was doing some training with a, a buddy of mine uh, a few months ago, and he was, you know, he was trained. He was he was training me, so he was, we were pushing sleds and all that stuff, and and he was in in this seal case, stuff, seal stuff, right? <laughs> right. Um, in this case, he was I was pushing a sled, and he was timing. He was timing me, and I said, "What are you timing?" He said, "Well, I'm timing how fast you're coming out of the gate, you know, and then how and then how fast you're doing the entire thing." And he said, "What what's happening with you is that you when you come out of the gate, you're paced." Right, but you but you maintain the same pace the whole way through. You never mm. slow down. You're basically the same pace. He said, "When I do it, I come out explosively, so I'm really fast, and then I taper, I, I slow down." He right. said, "It's the difference between anaerobic and aerobic." Right, and it hit me, and I said, "I said this is very interesting because this is optimal performance. This is actually what this is actually what seals. I say special operators do all the time. We are aerobic thinkers. We go in. We are trained to go into situations at a pace." And we don't go all out right away. We just don't because yeah. we understand that we don't know how long this is gonna last. And we may have to go all out at certain points. So when I do go all out, I wanna be able to go all out. And as soon as I don't have to, I pull back and I start recovering. Mm-hmm. I would imagine the same thing happens in ultra racing and in and, and some of these longer distance events because uh, you know what points, hey, okay, now I gotta turn it on. Mm-hmm. I gotta go to 10, okay. That's done. I'm going to dial it back to a five, you know, mm-hmm. because I need to I need to recoup, you know, um, and I think that's optimal performance. Yeah, I mean, the in the training you prepare for that by um, creating a tremendous aerobic base, so that when you do exceed that threshold, you're able to come back to that baseline Absolutely. more rapidly yeah. and reset, which gets into like the micro recovery kind of thing that you talk about. Yeah, yeah, micro recoveries. So when I was at the same place, we were we were putting together. And issues. I was I was asked to take a look at resilience, you know, because we were at we were 
what, 10 years into a, into the war and we were noticing guys were coming back and they were broken, you know, we're retiring broke physically, mm-hmm. mentally. Um, and so we, we started asking ourselves the questions about resilience and, and, and in diving into resilience, I was, I was interested, admittedly, I was more interested in, in kind of the, the other end of resilience. Resilience is an important word and it's, um, and it's something we all need to have. It's an attribute, right? Um, but resilience describes the ability to get knocked off of baseline and come back to baseline. That's what it is, um, necessary in our, in our mm-hmm. survival. However, what's also necessary in our, in our survival is what I'll say is anti-fragility. Great, great book called by, by right. Nassim Tlaib. Um, anti-fragility is the ability to get knocked off baseline. And when you come back, you've, you're stronger. Your baseline has shifted. And so I began to say, okay, you know, and my, I and the, the guys who, who were helping me put this together, okay, how do we do that? Um, part of that, a large part of that we felt was the mind, you know, and so, okay, how can we start looking at the mind and, 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 and understanding the relationship to our brain to affect our physiology and, and, uh, and be better physically? Well, you know, a lot of us, we, when we expend energy, what we don't realize is that recovery um, is one of the most important factors of obviously any, at, at any physical endeavor. And it often takes twice as long, if not three times as long to recover after you've done something. Mm-hmm. This is why sleep is so important. It's the ultimate recovery. Um, I was interested, I say I, I and the team I was with, we were interested in, in what we were defining as micro recovery. What are those things we can do that allow us to charge our internal batteries um, in, in moments, right? So I would call it recovering between gunfights, you know? Um, so I have five minutes here just to take a breath and pause. Can I plug in my internal battery somewhere and, and build up my energy a little bit? What are those things? And so we began to explore things that allowed us to do, it, do that. This is where another where, place where Huber and I really gelled is because he was studying this in the lab mm-hmm. and, um, and techniques that you could, you could basically shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic um, and begin to recover, you know? And you could do that through breathing, you can do that f- through visualization, you know, there, you could, you could, there's different ways you can do it in terms of short term. You know, there's, we call it, there's kind of medium recovery. You can do, you know, um, meditation if you're into that. Uh, you can do um, saunas, whatever it is. Uh, you can do macro, which is, you know, we could do, obviously sleep is one, vacations, right. <laughs> if you do it right, right. Um, or others. So, so recovery became an important factor and micro recovery meant, okay, what are those pauses? Where, where, can, I, where can I grab those moments and do a small recharge? Again, it's not, you're not fully recharging. This is, this is you're plugging in your, 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 your mobile phone that's at 10%, right before you get on the airplane, you're plugging uh-huh. it in to get up to 15%, because right. that's what you got, so. Right, so that's resilience more than anti-fragility, because you're, you're not trying to boost above the yes. baseline, you're just trying to get back to your, your set point. That's exactly, during right. the moment, in the moment. In yeah, the moment. anti-fragility has to come typically after the moment. Right. And that's so, based so, on him. Yeah. Right, so you use like the gun, like the gunfight example, but a more you know, relatable example might be something like, you know, I just, I had to go meet with my boss and he chewed me out about this thing and I'm walking back to my office and I have to jump on a conference call. Absolutely. And I've got like two minutes, what's the technique? Is it a breath work? Is it a specific practice? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, and, and I would say even even more relatable is you just had a bad day at the office and I have to go home and and, and, and have some kid okay time, with be okay kids. with the family. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, the tools the tools range from, I mean, so there, so breathing is a huge one, right? And, and just, uh, just uh, focused. I know. I think uh, there's there's um, CO two blowout breathing where you can you can basically mm-hmm. you hold, you you take a breath, you go up to as to your capacity, and then you blow out longer than you inhaled. Right. That's that's blowing out CO two. It's shifting you into parasympathetic. So there's breathing. 
Um, HRV breathing is something I, you know, we brought in and started started playing with, and and I would recommend um, visual tools. I know Andrew talks about some of those. Yeah. Uh, open gaze, open gaze is a really good one. And open gaze just um, instead of staring at something in front of you, you're basically letting your eyes relax and you're noticing all of your peripheries. Uh-huh. Um, that has been proven to start shifting you into parasympathetic. Those mm-hmm. are ways you can recover. Um, visualization, active visualization, you know, uh, you know, we, it's, it's also been studied and, and proven that we can visualize in a way that makes our brains actually believe that we're actually conducting the act, right? So, so all of the chemicals that are being uh, uh, released in, the, in, a, in a physical con- conduct of that action can be also released when you're actively visualizing it. Mm. Um, so when you begin, when we, if we start to kind of think about and break down the sympathetic, parasympathetic system, you know, sympathetic, obviously engagement, you know, active, right? So, uh, parasympathetic recover, uh, uh, right. recharge, and then start kind of breaking down the chemicals involved in each, right? If we're, if we're in sympath, if we're, if we're angry, anxious, fearful, we're releasing bursts of cortisol, which are awesome for action, but they're, they're, uh, I wouldn't say destructive. They, um, they take a lot of toll on our system. Mm-hmm. So our bodies were designed to shift us into, into parasympathetic where we build up DHEA, which repairs all that stuff. Um, so our emotions actually have a lot to do with these chemicals. When we're angry, anxious, and fearful, we're making cortisol. When we're joyful, peaceful, and calm, we're making DHEA. Um, a recovery technique is to be joyful and calm. Uh, gratitude gets you there too. Uh, but think about, I used to visualize my, especially when my boys were little, they're like babies and they like go take naps on my chest, right? I was lay on the couch, they take naps on our chest. That was such a warm, wonderful, positive feeling. And I began to visualize that in a way that I could feel it. And I could literally begin to feel a chemical response. Mm, and I'd use that as yeah. recovery mode. So active visualization of some of these events um, can actually help uh, because what you're doing is you're generating a, a chemical response that's shifting you and repairing you. Um, and then we have to understand that even even a sympathetic response that's positive is actually recovery. Joy joy is a sympathetic response. True, like exuberance and joy. Mm-hmm. That's that's your sympathetic system. But you're creating DHEA, DHEA instead of cortisol. And so so I think you know in terms of so micro recovery, it's about understanding those uh, those tools that you can use either vision or breath, um, and maybe some visualization tools that you can feel as you're getting into more uh, macro level recovery. It doesn't have to be just sleep, right? You know. I run, I don't run the distances you do, but uh, but I run in the woods in Virginia and I run maybe five miles. I don't use headphones. I don't use a clock. Right. I just jog, right? Mm-hmm. And it's by it's in the woods, it's by the water and it is absolutely rejuvenating for mm-hmm. me. That's, and that's when I think the best and, and I'm just, that is my recovery time, you know? Right. So, so you can use that as well. And what's the HRV breathing? So heart rate variability breathing. And, and this, is a, this is a type of tr- a breathing training that allows you to uh, synchronize. And it's really the, it's the, it's the variability between your, your, the, the, your heart right. rates. And so what that does is that, you know, if you synchronize those, you actually, you actually shift into, well, so I don't wanna get deep and I did not stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. So I gotta be careful, right? I'm not an uh-huh. expert here, but, but if, you, if you, HRV breathing, if one were to look it up, it actually helps you uh, breathe in a way that, that, that uh, helps you uh, shift into parasympathetic states, if you want, mm-hmm. it, 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 mm-hmm. should you desire, or, and I haven't gotten to this level, or be more focused and active while you're in a moment, right? So, so right. really, really um, 
uh, intense or, or, or high level HRV breathing, you can do actually in the moment as well. Uh, but so it's a specific breathing technique that allows you to kind of boost your HRV? It is, it's a, allows you allows your HRV to stabilize. Right? I see. It allows I should say synergize. Uh-huh. Uh, so the so the so the waves the waves are now you're you're in you're in coherence basically with Got your it. with your with your heart and and synergize that relationship between your, your heart your your uh, your brain and your nervous system. Right. So yeah, HRV is super interesting. I've started paying a lot of attention to it lately when I started wearing the the Whoop mm-hmm. and noticing that. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll get a great night of sleep and my deep sleep is good, my REM sleep is good, and I feel like I'm ready to go. And then the whoop will tell me that my HRV is actually way lower than right. it was two days prior or something like that. And yeah. that this is a day, and I was like, but I feel good. You yeah, know? yeah. And then there are days where I don't feel that great. My, my, my HRV is pretty good. So it's not a feeling thing. It's not, like, it's not. It's been, it, I, I've dabbled in it, which is why uh, I, I hesitate to go in depth, but I do in, in dabbling with it and then talking to the guys who know, you know, Huberman being one of them, it is effective. Um, if you understand it, it's effective in your system's ability to be in coherence. Um, but the relatability to how you feel in terms of relaxed or active. Yeah, there's, it's disconnected. It's, it's difficult, yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today, that's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, 
to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, well, let's get back to these these attributes. So you were talking about how you arrived at this huge list and you began to cull it. So how did you hone in on, I mean, there's 13 in the book, yeah. right? And they're kind of divided into these these categories as being like the core attributes. Yeah, 25 total. Um, 25. Uh, yeah, uh, there's, so five categories. So what I so what I really needed to do and what I did as I, as I looked yeah, at them is like, how, how do, how do these group together? Um, and, and, and then how do, I how, do, how do I categorize those groups? I have always, always been interested in grit, right? And it's probably because I went to SEAL uh -huh. training, right? Um, and, but one of the reasons is because people have always talked about grit as if it's an attribute. Um, and I, I have disagreed with that because it didn't make sense to me. But of course, Angela Duckworth wrote a book on grit, which she essentially said mm -hmm. the same thing. She said, right. grit is not just one thing, right? It's a, it's a, and so I began to say, okay, if grit is not just one thing, what are the attributes that make up grit? And so I looked at the attribute list and said, okay, I think it's these four things. I think it's courage, perseverance, adaptability, resiliency. Mm -hmm. um, those blended and catalyzed create grit. It's like the loaf of bread coming out of the oven. Um, and I would say, you know, you can have them, and they can th those those attributes singularly work in different contexts, of course. But when you have those four, you're talking about grit. So that's how I. So I began to say, okay, how do these clump? You know. Um, mental acuity, you know, I saw some of these attributes had to do with how, how, how our brain kind of functions in the, in, in, in processing, processing the external world. It's something I saw viscerally when I was running SEAL training because I'd see guys in the, in the, in the shoot house, right? And you could see how quickly they were reacting, how quickly they were absorbing. Mm -hmm. that all spoke to this mental acuity. Um, drive, same thing, you know, drive is interesting because you know, drive, it's just, we, we all know these people who seem driven, right? So, so someone who makes a ton of goals, but they don't execute on them or someone who starts a bunch of stuff, but doesn't follow through or someone mm -hmm. who's really hard to get started, 
But when they do, you can't stop them. You know, what are those things? And so I started to try to clump those and see if they made sense. And of course, leadership mm-hmm. and team ability. And I have three I talk about, we can get into those later that are, I call the others because I call them bi-directional attributes. But that's kind of, I try to use it as a process to clump them, to make them a little bit more understandable for the reader. And then I, of course, I, I, I looked at my original 36 and said, okay, what are the ones that really don't apply? They're very SEAL specific. Um, and I called those out and that's really how I came up with the 25 that are in the book. Right, it's super interesting. I mean, back to that opening example of the SEAL who was great on paper and couldn't execute in that training exercise, what you discovered was that he lacked situational awareness, which is one of the mental acuity attributes, right? Also in that category is task switching, learnability, compartmentalization. I mean, you can be really high on learnability, but if you don't have situational awareness, you're not gonna be able to clear a room. Totally, right. and so I, I would say that the mental acuity one, uh, yeah, the mental acuity ones are the 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 four I think out of the twenty five that are the most connected. They're really you can't have they they, they don't operate independently as mm-hmm. as much, right? So situation awareness is first. That informs. I mean, that's eleven million bits of information coming into our systems at right. every second, right? And that's from all of our senses, you know, from our visual to our our, our smell to our feeling. Um, our brain does a massive amount of, of, of discarding of, of stuff that we don't need to pay attention to, right? So, uh, so we're not paying attention, for example, to the soles of our feet, you know, until we, I mentioned that and now we're paying attention to it. Right? Right. So, but but our, our brain's always like, okay, we don't have to pay attention to it. Um, so all that information is coming in, a lot of it's coming in now, so coming into our frontal lobe, which is only about 3000 bits that can process, right? So those 3000 bits are what we have to consciously Say, okay, this is my environment. This is what I'm noticing right now. Um, situational awareness speaks to your one's level of vigilance. How much are we noticing? Mm-hmm. And we all know people, you know, my wife and I joke about this all the time. I am pretty hyper vigilant. I notice a lot of things. I'm the guy who walks around the New York City streets and I notice. But how much of that is just drilled into you? Well, so some of, of it is. Training yeah, some of it is. Yeah. You've been trained to be that way. Some you're of it is admittedly. Aware of what's going on around yeah. you. Yeah, you know, you're right. And some of it is admittedly. But like I look at my son, my eldest son, he's kind of like me and he's pretty uh-huh. vigilant. He's, he notices things. You know, he's not, he's, he's, he's more aware than, say, his brother, who's more like my wife, who mm-hmm. isn't as, you know, they, you know, they're kind of in their head, you know, just looking mm-hmm. around. You know, so we see that. So, and again, there's no judgment. It's really where you stand on these. I, I do maintain that all of us have all of these attributes. Um, it's just a matter of what levels of each that we have. So for example, I'm, I have a higher level of situational awareness say than my wife, you know, we both have situational awareness. It's just the level. So, um, so that's the first thing, information coming in. Once that information comes into our frontal lobe, now it's time for us to process it. And that's compartmentalization. Compartmentalization is, is basically three things happening. It's, it's assessment, it's prioritization and focus. So mm-hmm. information's coming in, I'm going to assess what of this information that I'm noticing is important to my current task. You know, I, I joke, I love to go to New York City. I love to ride the subways. It's because the subways are thoroughly confusing <laughs> to yeah. me. It's an exercise in all of these, in my mental acuity attributes for me. So I'm going in the subway and I'm saying to myself, okay, I need to get to Brooklyn. Okay, what about the information coming into me? Do I need to, do I need to, or is important? You know, obviously the, the newsstand with the newspaper, I, I can discard that, that's not important. You know, even though I noticed it, I don't need to, you know, I need to notice, I need to, I need to say, okay, signs, tracks, things like that, right. you know, maps. You know. Because you're so hypervigilant, it's more difficult for you to um, crowd out what's non-essential to focus on the task at hand. 
which is getting it, to that, Brooklyn. That certainly right? take that set, that like certainly takes training. Yes. Yeah, like yeah. the thing is, these <laughs> yeah. things don't function or operate in isolation. Like mm-hmm. if you're so hyper vigilant, it's probably more difficult for you to focus on one thing if you're on a crowded street where there's a lot going on. You're absolutely right. And right. this is where this is where too much can actually be a little bit of a detriment because hypervigilance to a to a to too much of a degree leads to stress. Uh, yeah. because you're just, you're 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 overwhelmed or you're, there's too much your your task switching too quickly mm-hmm. you know so um so yeah you have to manage it i think i think certainly you talk about the training my 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 lifestyle for 20 years trained me pretty well to have to, to eyes have that in the back of your head that's and and know what to focus on in fact you know special operators and seals are 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 in large part to a man very very good at this because the environment just trains you so well mm-hmm. and it's about okay what's coming in okay now from what's coming in what do I need to focus on you know what do I need to assess then prioritize what's the out of these okay these three things are important are of importance to what I'm trying to do get to Brooklyn right what's the most important one of that you know for me it might be the the signs the track right. signs right so I've got so I'm gonna focus on the track signs. Um, I should probably look at the map. I don't have to worry about the guy who's 15 meters behind <laughs> that's, me. That, that, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I can I can I can tune yeah. that person out. Yeah. Then we get into task switching. This is where it gets it gets fun and a little bit of tricky because task switching again. I I, I talk about it in the book. You know, we multitask is a, a myth, right? We know mm-hmm. that um, most people, however, think they're pretty good at it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but statistically, what happens is what happens is we're not multitasking. What we're doing is that we're task switching, and um, and those people who think they're multitasking are actually task switching very inefficiently. And studies have shown when you multitask, the more you try to multitask, um, the worse you get at, at the right. activity you're trying to do. Right. Uh, and it's because you're task switching ineffectively. Task switching is basically the ability to switch focus from one thing to another efficiently and seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, we do this all the time inside fixed context, like driving a car, right? When we're driving a car, at one moment we're steering, you know, the next moment we're putting our foot on the brake, the next moment we're putting our blinker on. So we're ta- we're actually task switching inside that context pretty pretty seamlessly. We do this in life all the time because we drive our car to the, to the parking lot of the grocery store. As soon as we get out of the car, we've just swapped contexts, you know, and our brain is shifting context. Now we're in a parking lot. Okay, then you get to the grocery store, Grocery store, new context. So we're task switching naturally all, all the time. Um, the our, the the measure of task switching in an individual is your comfort and ability to do that efficiently between mm. between contexts, especially in times of stress. Um, um, I am pretty good at switching tasks, and because of my situational awareness, when I switch a task, when I switch into a task, I still maintain an awareness of the environment so that I, I understand if I need to switch again. You know, that's that's right. a, you know. What where that where that's a detriment to me is sometimes I have trouble focusing deeply on something. You know, um, my wife is incredibly, she, she's incredible at focusing. When she gets into something, man, she just is. She drives. She's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, things fall off. You know, the things things on the on the right. periphery less hyper vigilance. Yeah, fall less, off the plate. Less you know? situation situational it awareness. Goes down, yeah. and and uh, probably not as good on the task switching. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, but but super super productive. And and powerful when it comes to focus, you know, mm-hmm. way way better than than I am, you know. So so there are pros and cons to this, you know. It 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 all it all depends on what you're using it for. And then of course there's learnability. How how much are you processing all this and absorbing it into your system so that you're not making the same mistakes again? Um, admittedly, if I'm if I'm higher on all of those, 
I'm lowest on learnability. And what that means is it takes me a while to learn things. I actually, I repeat mistakes more often than I like to admit. Um, we all know people who they learn something and the first time they got it, they, the first time they learn it, they pick it up. I mean, they got mm -hmm. it, right? That's high learnability, you know? And, and the fact is neither is better nor worse, but understanding where you, where you lie on that. For me, especially when I was in some, some of the SEAL training evolutions, I would stay late. I would repeat things in my head. I would walk the hallways of the of the buildings we were you know we were practicing clearing just to under just to make sure I was hammering home some of those things uh -huh. that I knew I couldn't it was took me a while to pick up you know so uh, so lower on learnability is not a bad thing no, lower on any of this stuff is necessarily not a bad thing it's just okay how do now I adjust my my environment so that I can affect that you uh -huh. know? and high enough on self awareness to understand that you needed to do that for yourself <laughs> yes. right like what's interesting is. It's not, there's no value judgments on any of these. We all come with, you know, we, we, our, our, our toggle switch is different for all of these different That's things exactly and everybody right, yeah. has their unique framework. Um, but I'm interested in this distinction between innate disposition and what is uh, trainable. Cause mm -hmm. when I think of one of these attributes, I think, well, if somebody is walking around with a certain level of resilience or courage or situational awareness, Perhaps some aspect of that, you know, they just came out of the womb with that, but they're also a function of their environment and mm -hmm. their their parents and all of the, you know, things that that you know happen to you as you as yeah. you age. So that has to be an aspect of it too. Like what trauma did you survive? Or, you know, what what was your dad or your mom telling you? Like all of don't those contribute to these Baselines, one hundred percent. And so, so the the great news is we can develop attributes. Uh, we just can't do it the same way we do a skill. Uh, we can't. If you're impatient, I can't sit down and teach you a class on how to be patient or how to be resilient mm -hmm. or how to be adaptable. Um, it has to be to develop an attribute. It has to be self directed. You have to want to do it, and you have to oftentimes make a conscious decision to affect that attribute, even though your 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 natural tendency might be opposite. Right? We all in twenty twenty developed attributes we all because the environment required us to we all developed our adaptability <laughs> in 2020 uh -huh. bar i mean there's no one I, I would imagine there's no one who didn't you know adaptability was a high developed attribute in 2020 because the environment forced that on us some of us found it fairly easy those of us who did are probably started on started high on adaptability uh -huh. some of us found it more difficult and hard those 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 people probably were low on adaptability but no no matter who you were you developed it you became better at being adaptable and if if we are hit with some some weird stuff in 2021 um, we are all we are all more prepared to handle mm. it now because we're we've developed our adaptability and i would say resiliency and a, a bunch of the others too what is the relationship between adaptability and like what's missing from this list mm -hmm. is in my mind is optimism. Like people that have an optimistic disposition are generally more adaptable and resilient. Yes, yes, you're, so you're absolutely right. Optimism, so I talk about optimism in self-efficacy. I, I actually add it as a component of self-efficacy. And the reason why I add it as just a component is because um, optimism on its own is inert. Um, we can, we, you and I can be optimists all, all day long. Hey, we, you and I can uh, plant a garden and decide just to leave it uh -huh. and say, there are no weeds, I shall have a bounty, right? <laughs> and do nothing and we'll be disappointed right, right. come springtime, right? So optimism on its own is inert. Optimism when, when paired with attributes is actually when it's the most effective. I pair it in I the see. book, I pair it with self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is a combination of confidence, initiative and optimism. So self-efficacy is I, I believe I can do it 
And I believe as I move through, even though I don't know how mm-hmm. exactly, I'll, I'll make it happen, that's self-efficacy. And so, and so if you look at those three factors of self-efficacy, each one on their own doesn't do much. Confidence on its own doesn't do much. You know, I grew up um, and my dad was a private pilot. So he took us flying uh, all, all the time, every weekend almost if we could. So I loved, I developed this love for flying, my brother and I, and, and we wanted to be Navy pilots. You know, that's what, that's what, our, that's what drove, drove us to the Navy. And my twin brother actually ended up flying the Harrier for the Marine Corps. I ended up taking a different turn and going to SEAL training. I love flying, I love it. I've been in hundreds of airplanes, hundreds of hours. If you put me in an airplane, I, could, I know I could pretty much fly it. I know how to fly. Um, I've never flown, a, I've never gotten my pilot's license. I've never flown a plane, right? Mm. So confidence in my ability to fly is, is inert, right? Initiative is the next thing. You need the ability to take the first step, okay? Because um, if you don't have that, you're not going anywhere. Initiative right. has to have purpose, right? Because initiative on its own is frenetic energy. You know, uh, you put a, you put my, um, my you, well, he's not eight year, put an eight year old in the driver's seat of a car, that kid's gonna have initiative to push that accelerator, right? It'll be dangerous if he does. <laughs> you know, so initiative uh-huh. on its own needs to have direction and purpose. And then of course, optimism. Optimism, I talk about optimism in a sense that it's tempered with realism, you know, uh, because optimism plus realism is actually very, very effective. Now, realism is necessary because it, it keeps you prepared. You know, I know I can do this. I know I can take this long drive mm-hmm. cross country by myself. My realism says I might need some gas along the way. I'm gonna put some, some cans of gas in the car or whatever. Realism helps prepare you. You just have to be careful with, with, uh, with realism tipping into pessimism, right? Because if, mm-hmm. you're, if you're too realistic, it tips into pessimism. But you've gotta be able to objectively analyze risk. You have to, because if you have no realism, it tips yeah. into arrogance, right? right. So, uh, so optimism has to be tempered. So I, I think optimism is an attribute, um, uh, but it's an inert one that you have to pair. Uh, for it to be effective. That's, yeah. that's what I would maintain. That's, that's certainly what experiences show yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. On, on so. the topic of arrogance, the, the one that jumps out, and I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, is, is narcissism. I do, yeah. That, yeah. Was a, that was probably my most Everyone fun. wants to talk about that. And it was my most attribute. fun chapter to write, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, narcissism, I, you know, when, when I thought about what drives people, um, I had to go back to why I became a Navy SEAL in the first place. And and I, w- I would maintain if you ask any SEAL why he became a Navy SEAL and that guy says, cause I'm a patriot, that guy's lying to you. He's not, well, right. he's not lying to you. He's just not telling you the whole truth. Cause mm-hmm. we're all patriots, right? I became a SEAL because I wanted to be a badass. I wanted to stand out. I wanted to see if I could do it. I wanted to be special, right? That's narcissism talking, right? So mm-hmm. narcissism is certainly a pejorative word. And of course there- Well, it's more than that because not only did you want that, you had a belief that you could do it. I did, or at I least did. enough initiative to initiative, sign up for yeah. it. So it's a combination, yeah. certainly. But where I where I wanted to explore narcissism was this idea that narcissism is a human thing. You know, certainly there's narcissistic personality disorder, and the DSM uh, psycho, DSM five, the psych, the big psych bible, right, will describe narcissism. They'll say, they'll, I think it lays out like nine nine descriptions. If you have five or more, you mm-hmm. have narcissistic personality disorder. I mean, and you read these like, oh yeah, that's bad, right? But then you read them, it's like, wait a second. I actually have a little bit of that, right? Um, oh, I have a little bit of that too. When I started reading that, I said to myself, well, I think we all have a little bit of narcissism because all of us at some point want to feel special. All of us at some point want to stand out, be recognized, be noticed, be loved, um, be adored. Um, and it and so you, you dig into it and you're like, of course, because the mm-hmm. science tells us this. When we are infants getting, getting looked at and adored by our parents, 
we are getting hit with doses of serotonin and dopamine into our, and oxytocin, those three chemicals. Uh, two neurotransmitters, one hormone, but powerful combination of this feeling of safety, love, and, and, and pleasure, right? That's the dopamine. Mm -hmm. Just when we're getting paid attention to as, a, as an infant, right? That translates to adulthood. We want to feel that, right? So, so I looked at narcissism, you know, I said to myself, and I looked at all of my team guy buddies and said, if none of us had this innate desire, just let's see if I can be a badass. None of us would have gone down this path. Narcissism was a driver. And so I think I, the reason why I would talk about it is because, because I want people to embrace their humanness. You know, we are, we are all human. We all have the need for these chemicals. Mm -hmm. So we all have a little bit of narcissism. So the, the question is, can you effectively use it? Can you capitalize it? It comes with risk because too much narcissism is obviously detrimental, one. Two, uh, narcissism is, is invisible to the, to the owner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like a vampire staring in the mirror, right? Um, hard to see in ourselves. So, so the, the inoculation to narcissism are relationships, loving and trusting relationships with people who will let us know if we're getting a little out of, right. getting a little ahead of our skis, right, you know? Right, My right. wife does this for me all the time. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and, and it's great. And, she, and I do it for her, right? It's a balanced relationship. But, uh, but those, and not only my, my, my friends and things like that, um, are these people gonna say, hey, okay, dial it back a little bit, you know, right. because, but I tell you what, if you, if you have a desire, if you're listening to this and you, you're maybe, I don't care what age you are, but you have this, this goal or desire, you know, I wanna be a, a singer, or a writer, or a poet, or I wanna be an athlete, or what, you, know, you wanna stand out, you wanna be recognized for that, there's nothing wrong with that. Use mm -hmm. that, use that as a driver because it works. Mm -hmm. uh, just don't let it get overboard. Right, so in going through all of these attributes, you can develop an understanding of what they are and then determine how you fit into all of that, where you excel, where your weaknesses are. There's a, there's a, you know, a self-knowledge component to all of this, but let's talk about the, the, like the practical application. Like once you kind of understand what your drivers are, what your attributes are that are motivating your behaviors, mm -hmm. where you excel, where you, you know, need some work, how do we translate this knowledge into forward momentum. Yeah, yeah, well, it, first understand where you wanna go, right? And what in what context uh, do you want to uh, uh, exemplify these attributes? So, so parenting and home, home life, you may say, you know what? I think I have a teenager, right? And, mm -hmm. and I have two teenagers and I think I need to develop my empathy a little bit. You know, I need to be more empathetic. Okay, I'm gonna work on that. I certainly need, I'm a patient person. I have to hyper develop my patience with teens, you know, so, so there's a the family context. Um, there's the business context. I'm in, I'm in this job. What are those attributes that my job requires that, that, would, that would allow me to excel? Likely if you're in the job, you already have those attributes, but how do I, how do I develop them further? Mm -hmm. um, or is there an attribute that I don't have a lot of that I do wanna develop, which again, can be done. You choose that and you focus on it. Um, the, the, the key to developing attributes is stress, challenge, and uncertainty, um, because that's when they are hyper-developed. Um, patience, you, 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 have to, you have to place yourself into a situation of, a situation of impatience to develop your patience. And again, mm -hmm. I talk about patience as one of the bi-directional ones, so I keep on using it. There's nothing wrong with being but do impatient. You, do you not also have to put yourself in that high stress environment to really get a grip on just where you fall in that pecking order with that attribute? Ultimately. Because that reveals the truth yes. of where you really yeah. 
it, it's, those are, that, that is the purest environment. What we've done, what we've done with the book and on the website is we've developed an assessment tool. tool. Yeah. yeah, you've got the tool. Yeah, the assessment tool. So what we did is we developed this assessment tool for grit, uh, mental acuity, and drive. We we put together questions and then we pushed it out to about a thousand people all around the world and uh-huh. got data back. And that data basically gave us baselines that we could use for someone who comes and takes the assessment. Mm-hmm. So the, what I talk, what I tell you, what I say about the assessment is, if you take this assessment, you what it'll do is it'll, it'll tell you where you fall on these attributes as compared to, you know, other people, as compared to a group mm-hmm. of a thousand, and that that number will increase as mm-hmm. we get the data. Um, that's only start. That's only a start point, okay? Because uh, because ultimately you, as an individual, need to ask yourself some questions about how you showed up in uncertainty. 2020 is a perfect, uh, a perfect- uh, Barometer. Uh, barometer, yeah, yes, yeah. an example. You can kind of look back and say, okay, when I was forced to stay home almost overnight, and now I'm teaching my son advanced calculus, I'm trying to write this book, I don't have enough toilet paper. I mean, when that, well, that happened, how was I on Resilience, adaptability, open-mindedness, um, courage. You know, how was I on that? How was I on task switching? Task switching was a was a huge one. I thought I was pretty good. I in fact, I'm a pretty good task switcher. You know, uh-huh. home context. I it was a little bit more. It was a little bit more difficult. Whereas my wife was task switching beautifully because she had been at home with mm. small kids while I was deployed for <laughs> months mm-hmm. on end. Moms are usually well. Moms, parents who have small kids are usually phenomenal task switchers, yeah. you know, because they're just constantly doing it. They're constantly exercising that. Um, so you, so, so the assessment tool is one way to get a, a little bit of a snapshot, I call it. And then um, asking yourself some deliberate questions about, wait, if I'm, I'm showing up a little bit low on say open-mindedness, um, why is that? You know, what, what, let me think about some other situations where my open-mindedness was challenged, okay? Uh-huh. Uh, let's see, I was at a, I was at a uh, an event and someone came up to me and began talking to me about uh, political views that were the polar opposite of mine. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. how, what, what was my open mindedness at that point? You know, mm-hmm. those are ways you can start t- assessing your own barometer. But then the other question is, okay, um, do I need to develop this? Do I do I need to or even want to? Right. There, you know, you know, I always say, you know, I talked about the leadership attributes too. There's some. There are some professions that are self-directed. You don't need a lot of the leadership attributes to to be in that profession. Now, I would maintain that you know, probably other aspects of your life you might be a leader, so you might want to pay attention. However, um, empathy is a good example. You know, the the amount of empathy needed for a Navy SEAL, the level of empathy is not as much as say a nurse, mm-hmm. right? So so if you're if you're in the nursing profession, um, you might want a little bit more empathy, empathy right. you know? Um, well, too much empathy for a Navy SEAL could be quite a hindrance. Could be detrimental, yeah. you're absolutely right. I always talk about Navy SEAL empathy as, as a dimmer switch, you know, because again, most of us are family guys. Um, and, so, and so I always thought about it as you, you dial it up and down as you needed to, but mm-hmm. there were times you needed to dial it way down yeah. uh, because to, to, to have it too high or even, even, even a smidgen too high, um, it will right. affect you, yeah. I would think that the assessment tool, like getting a really solid picture of where you lie on the spectrum of all of these attributes would just be such a powerful tool to somebody to help them direct their path and you know into the right, like trying to be the square peg into the square hole, right? Yes. Like, like what's the best career path? Well, here's what I'm dealing with. Like here are the careers that actually require excellence in these areas yeah. where I'm already excelling, like for a young person who's trying to figure things out, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you could 
sell this to ZipRecruiter and it could help them match candidates with the right jobs. Like it's yeah. a very powerful thing, right? Absolutely, I, and, and I, I get excited about it because of that. And I, the only thing I would offer is if you're younger and you're looking at this, just realize you're still malleable. Malleable yeah. and you probably still have a lot of dormant attributes because uh -huh. you haven't had a life experience or maybe mm -hmm. that has thrown you. I, might, I had the tremendous fortune of going to Bud's at 22 years old. Um, that was, uh, uh, that was an attribute factory. <laughs> I mean, uh -huh. I, you learn in that six months, you learn so much about yourself and your attributes. And again, a lot of it was, I hadn't, I hadn't processed it in a way that I could articulate it. But you, you come out, you, they ask, you know, you know, how do you feel after Bud? I mean, you feel so super confident because you just, you didn't, and it's not because you learned how to be a, a precision shot or mm -hmm. you learned how to do, uh, you know, you know uh, halo jumps, right? You don't learn that stuff in Bud's. It's because you just learned that in the some of the most harsh situations on the planet, you made it through, mm -hmm. you know, and that is powerful stuff, and that's really a lesson in attributes. So, yeah. so the younger folk, the, the younger people just have to recognize um, you may not think you have an attribute, but just understand you may not have been tested yet. So don't dismiss yourself just uh -huh. yet. But in some ways, and I talk about it again in the book, it's in some ways our values, understanding our values, start to point to some of our attributes. If you value competitiveness, then you you might be higher on the competitiveness scale. Um, if you value um, uh, humor, you might be yeah. higher on the humor scale. You probably are, um, and so those are those are some clues into that. So, as somebody who has been studying this for a long time and has come up with this framework, how has that impacted? Like when you were a, a Navy SEAL commander, how has that impacted the selection process? Like, because I feel like. Buds kind of happened the way it happened, and it it's sort of perfect in the way that it is, almost yeah. by accident or just by running so many people through this, it just you know became what it is, and it's probably not that different than it was ten years ago. I yeah. don't know, but um, but I would suspect that now coming into you know such a deep understanding of all of these attributes would alter how you look at candidates and screen them. So so. Yes, and there's, there's, I'm gonna separate that into two because the way we, what didn't have to change was the training. What uh -huh. did have to change was the way we looked at candidates. So in other words, the training we recognized, whether it was Bud's or the training I was running, was really quite good. You know, there was, there was not much we wanted to or needed to change because it was really quite refined, it's been going on. Mm -hmm. It had proven successful for, for decades. Um, all we needed to do was change what we were looking at. And what that allowed us to do in that environment at least mm -hmm. was to, to A, begin to understand more effectively why guys were faltering and not, or, or, or being successful. But it also allowed us to spot the dark horses early on. Guys who may not have shown a lot of technical expertise, but they had all the attributes we needed. And we're like, okay, I can teach that guy to shoot. Okay. I mean, yeah, he's, mm -hmm. he, he couldn't hit the broadside of a barn right now, but I could, I could teach him how to shoot. Right. That's easy, I could do that in the day. You know? um, and this is where I think organizations, companies, uh, uh, fail because their their hiring processes are typically designed around Skill skills. Based. You know, uh, here's the resume, which we all know can be very flowery. Um, here's uh, here's all your stats. You know, um, and then let's do a 30 minute interview and see how that goes, right? Yeah. Um, and it's funny because even interviews. You know, I had, I was working um, when I was doing this. I, I I bumped into one of our a guy who ran for one of our agencies ran a a, a program where he'd help people uh, develop undercover personalities. And he, he and I were talking about this. He's like, Rich, you're, this is so cool because you know one of the things we do is when we do these undercover personalities, we try to make sure we 
help someone develop something, a persona that's con congruent with who they really are. Because what we found is that even the very, very best actors can pretend to be someone else for maybe 30 days mm -hmm. before they revert back to uh, who, who they really are. And oh, no, by the way, challenge and uncertainty will revert you back almost immediately. So very few of us are really, really good actors. So some of us may be able to do it for a couple of days. Um, some of us may be able to do it for eight hours every day when you go to work, who knows. Um, but someone, almost every one of us can do it for a 30 minute interview. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's, right. that's beside, you know, that's, that's easy. Right, 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 so, right. so you can pretend to be anybody you wanna be for a 30 minute interview, which is why interviews um, aren't really a good measure. I really am supportive, at least in the hiring process, of um, probationary periods. Now, I hate the word probationary, by the way, because it's just, there's, so a, there's a pejorativeness negative, to that too. Right. But periods where a, a new hire can spend some time in an organization, getting the feel of that, um, they are assessing the attributes of the organization they want to be a part of or they think they want to be a part of. And the organization is getting a chance to see that person in different contexts. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, some of these attributes have to, they take time and context to accurately assess. Um, integrity is one of those, you know, do the right thing. And again, I, I go into what do the right thing is because it's different, it's subjective to whatever group you're in. But it, you know, does this person do the right thing in, you know, in front of people? on their own out in town um, when things are going going bad. So these are all different, and, and oh, by the way, one, one fail is not necessarily a measure of who we are. All of us are guilty of sometimes not doing the right thing right. or lacking some uh, uh, adaptability. Any one of these attributes, you know, any one of us, even if we're high on, we can find, our, find examples of, oh, I wasn't, I didn't show up with who I really am. Uh -huh. um, so you have to do it over time and in, in, in a few different contexts to actually get a good, accurate feel for it. Right, and above and beyond that, we were talking before the podcast about what happens so frequently is people do find themselves in the right job or position. They excel at that and then they get promoted out of that core competency into, <laughs> into a job where their attributes are a mismatch for, for the expectations. This is, uh, this is one of the classic problems of leadership. This is where we get into leadership because so often leadership promotions are based on successes in an organization mm -hmm. that are skills-based. You know, someone does really well and they've been at the company for a while, they get promoted into a leadership position. And I always say, you know, I, and I, you know I've, I've actually, since I got out of the, the Navy, I've been working in the kind of the leadership space. Um, so I've really been able to dive into it uh, uh, deeply. All you SEAL guys end up being it seems like that way. trying to get yeah. businesses to figure out how to run properly. <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah. seems like that. Way. But for <laughs> me, it was it was it was certainly a um, it was a it was a deliberate jump into something I wasn't necessarily comfortable with, talking in front of people and teaching mm -hmm. classes. Um, but it was also a, a a chance for me to again look internally and look back at what I did as a leader, and say, okay, what were where did I fail? Where do I think it felt good? One of the things I've realized, uh, and I'll, I'll call it a truism, is that you don't get to call yourself a leader, right? It's not, a, you, you, you know, the, we often conflate being in charge with leader, uh -huh. right? Um, leader, being a leader is, saying I'm a leader is like calling yourself funny, right? Unless you're making someone laugh, you're not funny, you know? Um, other people designate you a leader, which means leadership is a behavior, it's not a position, okay? You can be in charge, but other people will decide whether or not you are their leader um, in terms of how you behave towards them. And so we begin, to, um, we begin to look at leadership from a behavior standpoint. And this is where a lot of promotional processes fail us because promotional, because, because a lot of says, okay, if you do this and then this and then this, you will promote to this and you'll be in charge of a bunch of people. Well, okay, 
um, just because you're in charge of a bunch of people or just because you did this and mm-hmm. it doesn't make you qualified necessarily to be in charge. You're in charge because you you did what they're now doing really well. Right. Um, which right. At, at that point you're at risk just of micro- nothing to do with nothing to do job. with leading people, yeah. right? Um, uh, and it puts you at risk of micromanaging because <laughs> you're gonna look mm-hmm. at it and it's like, no, 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 that's not the way to do that, right? So, um, so oftentimes people are promoted out of what they're so good at into maybe a position of leadership. And it doesn't mean they shouldn't be there. Um, what it means is that if that happens, you have to recognize that your job has fundamentally changed. Now you are, uh, you are, you have you have people in your span of care. You are mm-hmm. you are now. Well, if you look at the leadership attributes, you are accountable for the development, the growth, the success of the people in in your charge, right? Uh, and it's and it's your job to to behave in a way that allows them to say, okay, yeah, I would follow that guy, I would follow that girl anywhere, you right. know. Um, and that's a completely different set of attributes. It is that are required of you. It is, yeah. Now, and I would say, I mean, now some of those are uh, transferable. I mean, empathy across a lot of the categories is, is could be a good thing. Accountability is always good, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, if you are a master at something, a master at a trade, um, and it may perhaps it's a singular activity, maybe a maybe a, I don't know. I'm going to say graphic designer. Maybe, I don't know how singular that is, mm-hmm. but maybe you know whatever. You're working by yourself, right? Um, some of these leadership attributes aren't as important. I mean, authenticity, yeah. Decisiveness, who knows? I mean, you know, um, uh, accountability probably, but uh, but I mean, selflessness, selflessness. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that if that you know. So, well, you have a great story about that though. The story of uh, of on upon graduation getting called to run the hill. Oh yes, yeah. Oh yeah. So okay, that illustrates that. Yeah, I think, so pretty beautifully. It does. Yeah. So this was in context of 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 trust, and so I think I think the the behaviors that build trust, by the way. Are very similar to the behaviors that build that 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 qualify leadership because tr- because again trust is not just a feeling. I feel like I trust this person. Mm-hmm. It's more than that, right? Um, it's actually a belief. A feeling is just a, a human emotion. That's what a feeling is. A belief is a human emotion that's been rationalized or justified. So so, so we make a belief to trust someone. You know, you can't make anybody trust you. All you can do is behave in a way that allows them to make a decision mm-hmm. to trust you. So goes leadership. So so I as when I was studying this, so I was asking the, somebody you need to trust me is an yeah, ineffective. That's strategy. exactly right. Yeah. Trust yeah. me or I am your leader. Those are just if someone says that, run the other direction. <laughs> right. I mean because <laughs> that's not good. You know? right. Um and if someone says trust me, just ask yourself why they're saying that. I mean yeah. if a fireman comes in and the building you, there's some trust there, right? You can uh-huh. believe that, but um, you know, or I guess if Schwarzenegger shows up and says, you know, come with me if you want to live, that's another one, right? But um, uh, the, okay, so the, we were studying trust. I was working for a company called the Chapman and Co Institute. They're still, I still do some work with them. Wonderful leadership company out of St. Louis. Um, we were studying this thing called trust, and I remembered, I, I remembered the story from from my own SEAL training. And so in SEAL training, it's three phases, first phase, second phase, third phase. First phase is a lot of the, the heavy, hard stuff, hell week is in there, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And you go to second phase and you're doing dive training, a lot of scuba stuff, still hard, but you're learning how to scuba dive. And then third phase is, is weapons and land nav and demolition. And so um, for the last five or so weeks of third phase, uh, you go out to an island, San Clemente Island. We can see it off the coast here. Um, San Clemente Island is about you know, 10 miles long. It's about a mile wide at its widest point. It's basically owned by the military. It's mostly military operations. Um, there's an airstrip on the north end. SEAL teams go out there to do a lot of uh, live fire demolition. SEAL trainees go out there for the last five weeks to do their weaponeering and demolition training. Um, and then the, 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 the joke is, or the, 
the the word is when you go out to the island as a student is when you're on the island, no one can hear you scream, yeah. right? Because, no neighbor complaints. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and no one can hear you scream. The, the instructors can screw with you all they want and no one, no one can. And even though, I mean, you're, yeah, it's the last five weeks of, of a six month program, but mm. you're still in SEAL training, so it's still tough. So there at San Clemente Island, you're still uh, they're, they're still they're still requiring you to do certain things to to just live, right? So you have to do PT, some sort of PT evolution, physical training, um, before you get the cha- before you're allowed to go eat a meal. So mm. so there, there were three different things you could do. Um, ironically, we ate three meals a day, right? So so one of them was a rope climb. So right outside the Chow Hall, there was a 65 foot rope. They had those at at uh, on, in Coronado too, but climb up and down the rope with full gear. Okay, that's where you go go eat, right? That's one. The other one was a combination, and I'll get this wrong, but I'll just estimate. It was something like uh, 50 push-ups, 50 dips, and then like 10 pull-ups or something. Uh-huh. And if you do those, then you you go and eat. Uh, the, the, the third one was what they called the hill run. So right next to the chow hall and the uh, barracks there was a hill. And the only way to describe this hill accurately was it was long, tall, and steep, okay? And the idea was you stood at the base of this hill and the instructor has a stopwatch and he says, go, he hits the stopwatch. You have to run to the top of the hill, sprint to the top of the hill. It's about a, I would guess 200, 300 yard uh-huh. sprint up to the top of this hill. There's like a little concrete monument there. You tap the monument and come back down. So you're, the time with which you had to go up and down decreased every week. And if you didn't make your time, you didn't get to eat, or they never starve you. Basically, you had to go wet, wet and sandy, mm. and you had to eat your meal outside. Which by that time in SEAL training, you're, you're, you're wet and you're, sandy. Yeah, you're hydrophobic. But you know, you're wet and sandy as you go. You go to the surf. You dump yourself in the surf. You just get soaking wet, and then you go roll in the in the sand after. It's called uh-huh. sugar cookie, right? Awesome. Um, yeah, totally awesome. Sugar and, cookie. Um, so <laughs> by that time in in buds, you are truly hydrophobic, right? You don't. You're just like, okay, oh, I'm going to do this. So that was a hill run. They uh, they had a modification for punishments. They called it the flight. So the flight was the punishment version of the hill run, which meant now you're at the base of the hill, you have all of your H harness gear. So you have your H harness with all of your ammunition. So that's about 30 pounds of stuff. Um, and you're at the base of some, some instructor had you know, painted a line called the flight line. Some other mm-hmm. sadistic instructor had built like this mock control tower that he could stand up with his megaphone and yell at you. Um, you'd stand at this thing and then you'd take a moving pallet, you know, so you'd see forklifts move these, these pallets of goods, right? Uh, the wooden ones are about 30 pounds. They also have metal pallets, which are about 70 pounds or so. We of course had the metal versions, only the best for SEAL students, right? So you, so you take a metal pallet and you put it on your back and the instructor says go, and you have to sprint up the hill. Now uh-huh. you're carrying, now you're not sprinting anymore because you're carrying about 120 pounds of stuff. Right. Um, so you're trudging up this hill, you hit the monument, you come back. That's usually reserved for punishments if you screwed up, you know, whatever. If you were lucky, you didn't have to do a lot of flights when you were there. Um, some guys had to do a lot because they were wise asses. Um, but, uh, but that's a flight. So we were, it was, my, it was my class, we were, it was about, the, it was like the day before we were getting ready to to uh, to fly back to San Diego to graduate SEAL training. Mm-hmm. We were done, and we had started with I think 160 odd people. We were down to 38. 38 of us left. We're in the barracks cleaning up, just getting ready to think, you know, packing, getting things ready to go. Really, just on top of the world because we're we're done. And from the outside of the barracks, we hear uh, Class 210 muster on the flight line, and all of us like, oh, okay. So we all kind of begrudgingly march out there. We're in line, the instructor gets on the podium. This guy's name, it was Instructor Goodman, right? As, ironically, he was not a good man. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but Goodman says, uh, all right. He said, what's the, what's the fastest hill run anybody's done so far? 
Um, and I think I'm just gonna say it was two minutes or something. It's like, okay, we're gonna do flights until someone beats that time. Now, just a reminder, hill run, when you do it, you're slick. You have nothing, you just use sprinting yeah. up the hill. Flight no is, pallets. yeah, flight is H harness pallet, right? And so I am not certain what sound I made or face I made at that moment um, that cued Goodman into me, but uh, we were all pissed, right? But I, I, I must have made a sound because he's, he looks at me and said, hey, Davini, do you have a problem with that? And so I'm feeling a little bit, you know, uh, you know, snarky, I guess. I step right. out of line, I say, yeah, I have a problem with that. And he's like, why do you have a problem with that? I was like, cause this is stupid. Guys are gonna hurt themselves going up the hill. Whatever, There's, it's, just, it's, just, it's a stupid idea. Right. Now, um, at that moment, the rest of my guys in my class are dead silent. Okay. Yeah, let me just interrupt. Like, is there, I, I, I would imagine it's highly unusual to challenge your commanding officer yeah. in that way. I, yeah, or the instructor at that point. Yes, yeah. I would imagine it is. I'm not sure. I'm not. I mean, I, luckily, I've only gone through buds once, so right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know um, if it's happened before. Yeah, the consequences um, could be dire. I will tell you this: uh, the moment I so my my uh, my classmates were silent. Some of them I saw like were kind of moving away from me a little bit. They didn't know what was coming down. I the words left my lips, and admittedly, I was like, uh, "Okay, what the hell did I just do?" You know, because Goodman was silent for a good well. Uh-huh. Seemed like hours. It was probably You're not leaving the island. Yeah. You're going to be and, there a little uh, longer. Yeah, I don't know. And <laughs> so finally, he speaks up and he says, um, "He says, all right, since uh, since Davini, since Ensign Davini has a problem with this, what we're going to do instead is we're going to run back to the barracks. We're going to go to the auditorium and we're going to watch movies for the rest of the afternoon." And so now all of us are silent until someone's like smart enough to start moving before he changes his mind. So we all start running back to the to the barracks high fives, I feel great and all that stuff. So we watch movies the rest of the afternoon. But the reason why I tell that story is not because of that event. The reason why I tell that story is because 17 years later, 17 years later, I run into two guys from my buds class. I hadn't seen them since buds. I was pretty much an East Coast SEAL, um, which means I was in Virginia Beach, West Coast is San Diego. So sometimes you just don't, you don't see guys. And I hadn't seen these guys in, in that long. And we were reminiscing, it was great to see them. And at one point, one of the guys says, hey, sir, do you remember that time you stood up to Goodman on the flight line? Of course, I, I hadn't thought about it, but of course I remember. I was like, yeah, they, both of them at that point said, sir, man, we'd follow you anywhere. We'd trust you anywhere, anytime. And obviously that's nice to hear. And these guys are good friends, right? But I, I thought about why does that still exist? How does that trust still exist, right? After all those years, I mean, they didn't, they didn't necessarily know. I mean, I was still a SEAL, so obviously mm-hmm. I was obviously still active, but they, they hadn't served with me. So why does that still exist? And what I realized is it came down to these attributes. It came down to the fact that I was selfless. It came down to the fact that I cared about them. You know, uh, the, the competency of my studentness or even my sealness mm-hmm. up to that point had nothing to do with why they were saying that. They had, they, what had to do with what stuck with them over time for me in their minds, for, as a leader in their minds was the selflessness, was the authenticity, was the fact that I had integrity in that moment, right? Um, that's what stuck with it. The attribute stuck with them. Right. And I think that was really the lesson. Right. Like the attribute being your first instinct was to think about the welfare of the other guys. That's right. It would have been a very different scenario if you said, this is stupid because I'm going to get injured. That's true. Yeah. That would have been stupid mm-hmm. to say. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Admittedly. You, yeah. you would have ended yeah. up running a lot of hills. Uh, out yes. There, I, I, would have, I, I would imagine <laughs> I would. Yeah. yeah. Um, but here's the thing you know, people ask me all the time. When I tell that story, they say, hey, do you think Goodman had planned that? 
right? And um, and what I tell them is this. Goodman was actually, I, I, it's funny because buds and structures are, are like, they feel like Satan when you're in buds, right? But then buds ends and they're like the nicest dudes because they're just doing a job. They're really just pushing you. Goodman, wonderful dude. Um, I hadn't seen him since I haven't, you know, I don't know where he is. I hope he's doing well, but wonderful guy. Um, the, 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 the fact is I don't know if he had planned. I don't know if he'd ever done it before. What I do know is that he probably didn't expect that response. And what I did notice after that was the instructors treated me distinctly differently. Mm. Um, and I believe it's because they saw someone who would step out of line if I needed to, even at risk, that's selflessness. So selflessness, I define, it's more than just altruism, it's more than just generosity. Selflessness involves a risk. It involves a cost to the person who's being selfless. Um, if but you have to calibrate that against chain of command, like your allegiance to chain of command, right? Right, you do. And, and this is, so this is where attributes come in very, well, they, they're, they're extremely important when you're assessing leadership because because, uh, because, because leaders in any organization, military specifically, have to understand the balance between uh, executing the mission as directed and commanded and keeping the welfare of the people in their span of care in mind, there has to be a balance. Unfortunately, the military mission means that sometimes one, the mission becomes predominant over, yeah. uh, over care. And, and, but every, every spec operator, every SEAL note, mm -hmm. we all sign up for that. So that's not, I mean, we go risk our lives, that's the thing. But let's just put it in a, in a regular business sense. You know, sometimes you will be told to do something that's just a bad idea or outright wrong. The question is, or bad for the people in your span of care. The question is, are you, do you have the attributes and I would, I would count integrity in there, I would count uh, uh, accountability, I would count authenticity, I would count selflessness. Do you have those, uh, the attributes enough so that you can stand up when you need to be stand, stand, stood up to, mm -hmm. uh, to the leaders? But sometimes it's about also the leaders or the, the, the stuff coming down is actually the right stuff. And the, it's, the, it's the people who are, you're in charge of who are complaining. Do you have those same attributes to say, hey guys, no, this is the way it is, we're doing this. You know, are you are you steadfast in that type of in 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 in, in yeah. conducting that mm. uh, mission, right? Because that has to happen too. Leadership is tough. It, you know, true leadership is tough. Um, no one said it was easy. That's why it's hard, right? So, mm. and but but if we think about it, if I if I if I just ask your listeners to think about a great leader, and it could be it could be uh, it could be someone they don't know, it could be someone in history, but even someone in their own lives, someone in their own lives they consider a leader, right? Ask yourself to put, you know, I ask them, I would ask you, them the to, attributes to, yeah, to think about that, that person. person. Now think about the attributes that characterize that person, right? It's those attributes, it's mm -hmm. authenticity, it's decisiveness, it's empathy, it's accountability, you know? Um, it's all those things, you know, it's, and, it, and those are behaviors. Those aren't skills, you know? Um, I always give the example of my dad. My dad was a lawyer, you know, for 50, he still, he still practices law, right? It didn't, you know, he doesn't know much about plumbing. It still didn't stop me from calling him when I bought my first house and I had, troubles with my pipes. I was like, hey dad, my plumbing's off. Well, dad doesn't know, I just know dad is always gonna be there. He's gonna listen, he's gonna help me solve the problem. Uh -huh. He's gonna be a leader, you know, and that's what leaders do. Yeah. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. 
From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. The other characteristic of the story you just told is vulnerability. Like you, you put yourself in a vulnerable mm-hmm. situation by doing that. So how does vulnerability play into the equation? Like on the attribute scale or, or in the context of being an effective leader? Yeah, it does, it does in both cases. Although I put vulnerability in the team ability category. It's not an attribute because I, I actually lump vulnerability into humility. I think, I think humility, humility yeah. is vulnerability. That's what it is. It's, it's vulnerability expressed. Um, mm. Vulnerability is in, never in, thought of it that incredibly way. important. Um, and it's because in any team, in any high performing team, what has to happen is something that I call dynamic subordination. So dynamic subordination is this concept where I was actually, the story behind that is I was, uh, I was a bunch of CEOs had asked me to draw the task organization for a high performing team. Hey, what does that look like in a SEAL team? And and I I had some options, but the like the pyramid that we all know didn't didn't make sense. That's I'm in I'm in charge, you do what I say, right? That's the classic basically how every business and the military uh-huh. is structured, right? Then you have the flat model, which is like that became popular. Like, hey, we're decentralizing everything, you know, everybody's equal, we'll all make decisions. But even then what happens is silos because the, if you have a flat line, the right end of that line makes a decision, the left end doesn't maybe know what's going on. So that doesn't happen on a high performing team. Then of course you have the upside down pyramid, which is great. It's kind of the Greenfield's model, philosophical models. Hey, I'm your leader, I work for you. Cool, but it puts a lot of burden on that leader, right? So actually largely in frustration, I drew a blob <laughs> on the whiteboard. And I said, uh, where do you think the leader sits in here? And I got answers like, you know, left side, right side, middle. And basically I said, no, you're, you're, all of you are right. Um, the leader is wherever the leader needs to be in the moment, right? So in dynamic subordination, what that means is high-performing teams understand that challenge, uncertainty, and problems can come from any angle at any moment. And in that moment, the person who is the most capable and competent and closest 
takes steps up and takes charge mm. and everybody follows. It's a dynamic swap between leader and follower. Um, that happens, it happens as the environment changes because once the environment changes again, then someone, this was right. so uh, apparent in the SEAL teams, so apparent. I mean, it was incredible to work with guys, especially when you're working with guys and you, you just know, I mean, you know them, you know their silhouettes, that's how well you know them. And things happen and solutions just, it, people are just attacking the problem. I mean, suddenly it's my recce guy who needs, you know, we're all, okay, what does he need? You know, suddenly it's the assaulter. Suddenly it's me, I have to, I have to coordinate whatever mm -hmm. I need. The, the, the rapid swapping was so apparent, but I'll just give everybody a real world example of this. Um, we all know in a commercial airliner that the captain of that airplane is in charge. There's no, there's no debate that that captain's in charge of that aircraft. If on taxi out to the runway, that captain gets called by the maintenance officer and the maintenance officer says, hey, there's a problem with your aircraft, you have to turn around. No captain worth their wings is gonna ignore that. That captain will immediately subordinate to that maintenance officer and turn that aircraft around, okay? Aircraft turns around, gets back to the gate, now they have to deplane. Captain doesn't take charge of deplaning either. Now the flight attendant's in charge, right? right? And so this is an example of uh, dynamic subordination in the world. It actually, in high performing teams, in very effective teams, it happens all the time. What does that take? That takes vulnerability. Vulnerability though, is not just the stigma of showing your weaknesses. Vulnerability is showing your weaknesses and your strengths uh, because teammates need to understand where they can lean on you because that's your strength, they're your strengths and where you're gonna be leaning on them. You know, mm -hmm. so, so vulnerability works in the team aspect. And then as a leader, uh, vulnerability works because it shows people who, you, who are in your span of care that you don't know it all. It shows humility. It shows that they're needed. You know, I remember, you know, I mean, another thing I loved about the teams is everybody just understood their, their jobs and everybody stepped up. And, and this, this idea, like I needed, you know, I can't do what this, I can't do what the sniper does. I can't do what the assaulter does. I can't do what the breacher does. I need them, you know, uh, they need me to be able to know uh -huh. what I do, what I do. Um, vulnerability helps. They need helps. to feel respected and, and, and they need to have agency over their own department. And, yeah, yeah, and and and, they, and feel like what they do and their presence matters, right? Mm -hmm. They are they are a, an important, effective part of that team. That's where vulnerability really helps for, in a leadership aspect. And I, so so when you show um, when you show aspects of vulnerability, such as third phase, where you uh, are saying, "Hey, one of my jobs as an officer right now is to make sure that I'm looking out for the welfare of my guys." Okay, I'm going to step up and show, you know, that I did you know, that, that I care about that, even if it's at risk to me. I literally thought that I was gonna be running hills by myself <laughs> for the yeah, rest of the yeah. rest of the uh, day. Um, you know, but again, for me, it was, it was, it was a lesson that I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed the moment, but it was interesting how I didn't really process that fully until I actually started thinking about trust and leadership later on, like 20 plus mm -hmm. years later. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think these are, it's a, it's a really an, an interesting point. Yeah. So much of this seems to be about um, matching the attributes with the demands of, of the job. Obviously, in the context of the SEALs, if you're doing underwater demolition in the middle of the night, that's very different than being on presidential security detail. Yeah. You're both SEALs, yeah. those jobs are extremely different and there's gonna be a core competency or set of overlapping attributes that those individuals are gonna share but at the same time, it's recognizing that there are many other attributes that are at play here. Yeah. So in thinking about it in that way, is there 
like what are the crown jewels? Like in the SEAL context, like of all of these attributes, there's, there's gotta be a hierarchy of which ones are more important than others. In the SEAL context? Yeah. Yes, I would, I would imagine, I would, I would say that the, uh, the grid attributes are pretty high up. Um, I would say the, I would say a few of the drive attributes are pretty high up. Um, especially like something like cunning. Mm-hmm. You know, cunning is an enormously powerful, and, and most SEALs you meet, are the, the success of the Navy SEAL teams is largely based on cunning. Uh-huh. It's not because everybody is a super muscle. Cunning can you know. have a pejorative. It can, it can. Uh, but cunning really, uh, as as I kind of define in the book, means the ability to to look outside rules and boundaries, to think out, basically think outside the box, right? Um, because we are all subject to what's called functional fixedness um, or fixedness. Uh, um, and this is this idea that we we are drawn to 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 see boundaries that may or may not exist. Okay, um, so we look at a problem and suddenly we 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 place either we look at boundaries that are that we're given or uh-huh. we place imaginary boundaries that we think are are real on it. Versus we say, okay, what um, what about this? First of all, are these rules real or are they imagined? If they are real, if I break them, what happens? You know. So the example I give is a is a medieval one, a fantasy one, because I always I used to I used to tell this to my guys too um, to describe the difference between us and maybe some other maybe some other people. Um, and I would say, okay, uh, imagine you're in uh, you get dropped into a, a fantasy medieval world, and there's a princess in a tower guarded by a dragon, right? And the king. You know, wants that princess rescued, and the king has sent night after night to to slay that dragon and uh, and rescue the princess. Uh-huh. And and night after night has been killed by the dragon. Right? You drop a special operator. And when I say special operator, I don't mean just seal. I mean you know spec operator, you know, SF guy, you know, or Green Beret, you know, Ranger, whatever. Put him in the problem, and that first thing that guy asks is, "Hey, what's the mission? Save the princess." Well, who gives a, who gives a damn about the dragon? Right? I'm gonna find a way to save the princess without hitting the dragon because uh-huh. I don't wanna hit the dragon, right? That, that, guy, that dragon will kill me, right? So, so, the, so by design, special operations was created, were created to, uh, to think outside the box, to frustrate and agitate, to find ways around that people weren't thinking about. That's one of the things that drew me to spec ops in the mm. first place was this idea cunning. of in, cunning and invisibility and like, okay, can you, can you sneak around? I, so when I was growing up, I, was, I grew up in a town in, in Connecticut and, um, and I worked at one of my jobs was I worked at a marina, and the security guard at the marina he'd he'd, be, he'd basically come on at like five in the evening and he'd stay the whole night and leave at like eight or nine eight, eight in the morning once we came back. Guy name was the guy's name was Ed Stalling and Ed man he was he was a marine a veteran he was in World War Two he was he was on he was at Iwo Jima and we would sit there and he'd tell us the stories of Iwo Jima and this mm-hmm. guy I mean he'd bring us I was a teenager and he'd bring me to tears I mean this guy was the bravest. To this day, he's one of the bravest men I've ever met. Um, and one of the things I remember him saying, he's like, Rich, you know, it's hard to describe the feeling when you are at a, you're, 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 you're advancing, right? And you're, at a, you're in a line of cover, say foliage or whatever. And there's a, there's a open area that you have to go across to get to the next line of cover. Uh-huh. And the first wave goes and almost all of them get mowed down, right? And you're the second wave. You know, and I thought about that. And first of all, I was just like, and this is why I get chills talking about him because he's just, you know, and his, you know, we, I haven't talked to him. He, he died several years ago and we were able to say, you know, say hi to his sons. His sons were just, just as awesome. Um, but, uh, but I remember thinking that I was like, I don't know if I have an interest in being the second wave. You know, I have an interest in sneaking around and like, 
killing the the machine gunner before he ever sees me coming. <laughs> you know, um, I just think that's you know for me that was that was the attraction of special operators. You know, um, can can you find a way around to actually accomplish something that that needs to be accomplished um, with a minimum with a minimal life loss or whatever? And so I think right. that, so cunning is an important one. So I would say cunning. Um, I would say uh, I would say most of the team ability ones, um, uh, humor, incredibly important. And I'll, I'll, I'll dive into humor. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, I'll dive into humor in a second. I'll just finish the question. I think, I think for the leadership ones, I think decisiveness, I think um, accountability are, are both, are, are, they're all pretty important, yeah. I think, so. I mean, those would seem self-evident. Yeah, uh, I humor, think those are the, the ones, The humor one's yeah. different, is, is, is a little bit more unexpected. The humor? Yeah. Yeah, so humor, uh, so so we all need to to take a bow to all the comedians of the world because they do, do a, such a great service. And, and the reason is because humor, laughing is an involuntary response, right? And uh, when we laugh, what happens is we get we get jolted with three chemicals two neurotransmitters and one hormone. We get jolted with dopamine, which we all know, powerful pleasure chemical, that, that it, one of the most powerful in the world, right? We get jolted with um, endorphins, which is what masks pain, right? All of us who mm-hmm. do, I mean, you especially, and endurance runners know this, runner's high, that's endorphins. It's basically by evolutionary design, it's our body saying, okay, you need to, you, we, humans are endurance creatures, you need to keep going. So I'm gonna flood you with, these opiates to make you feel better, which is interesting because because they didn't know really we had endorphins. It was, I think it was the late 60s, mid 70s, they were studying drug addiction and they found opiate receptors in the brain. I was like, and they, they said, well, why the heck do human brains have opiate receptors? Well, the answer is because the human body makes its own Produce opiates. Around. Yeah. <laughs> enter, enter endorphins, right? That's what endorphins, they're the human body's opiates that, that, that mask pain. So we get uh, dopamine, we get endorphins, and then we get oxytocin. Oxytocin, a hormone, but guys like Huberman will say it's it's almost like a it's almost a neurotransmitter hormone. Mm-hmm. Neurotransmitters and hormones, if you know, just to break it down, neurotransmitters are like uh, are like the the fast flash, right? They they enter into our system very rapidly and they dissipate very rapidly. Hormones, on the other hand, enter into our system a little bit slowly, but they they last a lot. They're mm-hmm. like the the fire burning into the night. So the so the the neurotransmitters are like the fuel on the fire, and then the uh, hormones are like the wood that keeps it burning. Right. So oxytocin, it it's it's in between, but it definitely lasts longer. That is the love. It's known as the love love hormone. It's the it's the feeling of safety and connection and love. We exchange oxytocin in in really engaging conversations, in physical contact. Um, when we when we experience or affect acts of kindness between human beings, oxytocin is created, right? So when we laugh, all three of those chemicals are pumped into our system and we have no control over it. It's why we all feel good when we laugh. Laughing makes us feel good. So why is that important? And why is why does every single high-performing team I've ever encountered have at least one class clown? Um, it's because when we're in pain and misery, um, Humor is a hack. It's a hack into keeping on going, right? We get we get uh, slapped with these three chemicals. So one of the things I didn't tell you today about dopamine, I, it kind of it kind of falls into that courage attribute. Courage is really interesting. This is where Huberman and I really geeked out. You know, the the act of courage, the act of moving into our fear, uh, gives us a dopamine reward. Mm-hmm. You know, we decide mm-hmm. to move in, we get a dopamine reward. So so that dopamine reward is is designed by evolution to tell us, hey, keep going 
this is good, right? It's not necessarily constrained to when you actually reach the goal, it's as you take steps. So as we right. take step by step, we get dopamine reward. So it's encouraging us to keep on going. So we think about when we're in stress and pain, we're getting all three of those. So the story I'll tell you is this, because it, you know, I remember it was, it was hell week, and we were sitting in the surf zone. We had to, we were going through surf torture, all right. And so, so I don't. Yeah, you probably know what surf torture is. For those who don't, surf torture is when you, as a bud student, you link your arms up in this in the Pacific Ocean there in Coronado, which is like I think low 60s. You know, we did in November, yeah. so it was probably high 50s. And you basically link your arms and you 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 go to about uh, ankle deep, and then you lay down, and mm -hmm. then the waves crash over you, and then they recede and they crash, and it is the coldest thing you'll ever do. You're there you like know. all night, right? Well, they, they actually time it. They, they have stopwatches there so you don't get hypothermic. So they'll, they'll, they'll it feels like all night as a student, uh -huh. right? But um, anyway, we're in, and they usually, it's usually at night, right? So we're in, um, surf, we're getting surf tortured. This is during Hell Week. And as usual, the instructors, uh, because they're, it's funny when you see it on the outside, it feels sadistic when you're in it. They will drive a van onto the, uh, onto the beach and the guy will get out with his megaphone. He says, okay, anyone who wants to quit right now, I have hot chocolate, and I have warm yeah. blankets and I have donuts in the van. For anybody who quits right now, you got it's kind of like the survivor right. thing, right? You, you yeah, offer yeah. food, right? Anybody wants to quit, and a lot of people quit. But, um, but I remember him saying that, right? He pu pu pulled the van, he said that. And the guy next to me, the guy to my right, immediately pipes up. He's like, hey, do you have any chocolate glazed donuts? Because if you don't have any chocolate glazed donuts, I'm not quitting. Uh -huh. And, and I, I burst out laughing. He's laughing, I'm laughing. I thought it was hilarious, right? And immediately I, I knew this guy's gonna make it. Right. Because he, he, could, he, could, he could make a joke. He could find the funny, right? I knew I was gonna make it because I was laughing. I look over to my left, the guy next to me, to my left, that guy is not, his face hasn't even moved. He's like, <laughs> he's, he's lost in his misery. Uh -huh. Didn't even hear the joke, right? And I said to myself, he's not gonna this make it, he's like, gonna ring the bell. He's gonna ring, five minutes later, he rang the bell, uh -huh. right? He, so what happened there? So, so just in that moment, what happened? He, the, my buddy cracked a joke, right? I was immediately and involuntarily flooded with dopamine, which is a chemical that tells me to keep going, this is good. Endorphins, which is a chemical that says, actually, this doesn't feel that bad, right? I'm, I'm masking my pain a little bit. And then oxytocin, I'm connected with this, this uh -huh. guy right now, right? Uh -huh. it's, a, it's a courage hack, it's a, it's, a, it's a hack into keeping going. If we think about the pandemic, I would imagine those of us who were able to find some funny, um, actually started feeling better. It's why, you know, cancer patients report, you know, hey, you know, I start I just started focusing on funny movies. Right? I started mm -hmm. I started laughing more. Why? Because it's pushing all those chemicals. It's mm -hmm. it's causing you to keep going. Oh, by the way, I'm sure any scientist could say the whole host of other chemicals that it's, you know, that it's producing. Right. And I would think a means of developing a bit of anti-fragility also. Like you get this reset, right? Totally. And it it's, allows it's, you to yeah. like hit a baseline and maybe push through to another gear. Yeah, and I think one of the things about anti-fragility is the ability to effectively recover and reframe. So anti-fragility is based on the idea of being able to look, especially if it's a, if it's a traumatic event or challenge, can you look back and can you, can you understand and learn effectively mm. from that, uh, from that experience positively, right? right? And you do that in a couple of ways. First, the way you do it is you actually, you ask better questions. So, so I talk about this idea that, you know, again, high-performing teams, high-performing humans, um, they consistently do this. We are neurologically designed to ask questions about our environment. That's what we do to, to make sense of the world, right? Um, we're doing it oftentimes unconsciously. However, we can take control and sometimes consciously control this. The problem is a lot of people are guilty of, and I've been guilty of this too, asking the wrong questions. Things like, mm. why does this always happen to me? What's wrong with me? Why am I so bad at this, right? 
um, as soon as we place a, a question into our forebrain, uh, our brain will start coming up with answers. I do this experiment. I could ask you any question right now and I could say, okay, write down this question. How can I double my income in the next six months? And I'll give you 30 seconds. Write down anything that pops into your brain, okay? If I give you 30 seconds, you'll probably get a list of say five things. You know, Now, it doesn't really matter what those five things, some, some may be, um, uh, inane. Some may be, you know, bad ideas. You know, selling a kidney is not a good idea, right? Some, some are likely to be practical. You know, um, the the point is, as soon as you lodge that question into your brain, your brain began to answer it, right? This happens to us when we ask ourselves questions. Why am I so bad at this? Your brain starts to pollute your pollute your brain with why you are so bad at this. Versus, what are some of the things I learned? You know, mm-hmm. how can I be better? You know, and so part of the resiliency process is the ability to ask better questions as you look back on that experience. Humor, laughing about something helps reframe those questions. You know, if you can, if you, if you're at the point where you can laugh about something, you're in a perfect position to ask better questions about it and say, okay, how can I learn? How can I grow from this? You know, and that's, that's the seeds of anti-fragility. Well, I think that's a good segue into how we begin to think about 2021. Like we've yeah. emerged from 2020 and the shit show <laughs> that it's been that's right. yeah. uh, and all the stress that it's carried in various ways for people. Um, so I think it would be beneficial. Um, you know, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna do the kind of tropey, you know, set New Year's resolutions. I, I'd rather focus on how we can reframe how we think about the stress that we carried in, in 2020. Um, and use that as a launchpad or leverage for um, for growth in 2021. Yeah, um, that's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's and it's an important and this, one. This is what's on everyone's mind, though, it is, right? Yeah, like it it's, is. It's early January, yep. and uh, yeah, and we we, we got to get a grip on. It. We can't just keep in this static situation. A lot of people feel like they've just had their feet in, in cement totally. for the last year. Totally, yeah. Well, so the first, the first point is to understand that you have made it through, okay? So you, you've, 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 actually, you've actually grown because of it. So, so one better question to ask is how have I grown from this? You know, um, again, that's a subjective question, so I can't answer it for people. Um, I will say fairly ubiquitously that most of us have worked very effectively on our task switching attribute and our adaptability attribute. Um, resilience might be something we need to to help ourselves with by saying, okay, what are some of the positives that came out of 2020? Um, and, and, and how is my life better because of it? So that's a great question. How is my life better now in January, 2021 than it was in mm. January, 2020? Admittedly, that might take some thought, right? But you will come up with answers. You know, one of the um, one of the best ways to put yourself in the proper state, and I love this question, is to ask what you're grateful for. Gratitude also is a is an enormously powerful chemical combination when you are truly grateful. You're getting oxytocin, you're getting DHEA, you're getting um, dopamine. Mm-hmm. Um, asking yourselves, what am I grateful for now, um, is a great way in. Um, so then you, then you say, okay, what are, what are some of those things that I learned? What are the things I have to think about going into 2021? Okay, well, it's gonna be uncertain, we know that. So, so when I think about uh, my grit attributes, I'm gonna need a little bit of courage. If I, if I feel like I'm low on courage, I should probably try to develop that a little bit. I'm definitely gonna need adapt- adaptability. Um, perseverance, okay, I have some goals. Obviously, my goals might've been derailed in January, 2020. Okay, now what do I do? What are the things I can do to persevere and affect my goals in 2021, no matter what happens. How am I going to, and how I'm going to, how am I going to adapt to mm. do that? Um, I think an enormously important 
In fact, if I were to if I were to scale them, I'd probably say one of the most important attributes that we can all focus on in 2021 is open-mindedness. Open-mindedness, again, the closed mind is is not driven because the closed mind is certain. And and certain minds aren't curious and they're not seeking what's next. They aren't seeking what could be. Um, and if if 2020 taught us anything is that we don't know. You know, we don't know what's coming down the pike. And if we're open-minded enough to start understanding, okay, I'm going to take, now this is a passive, it's a passive act. It's, you know, optimism is, I would, I would call optimism proactive uh, pathway. Um, open-mindedness is a passive pathway where you're saying, okay, I am, I am going to be open to other ideas, viewpoints, situations, mm-hmm. so that I can try to look at them from a, from a, from a positive, not, not necessarily positive, but a, a proactive and, and, um, and effective lens. Um, but there's a difference between making that decision and actually effectuating it, right? You there can is. say I'm open-minded, but then you find yourself in a situation and you're very much not open-minded. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think we all found ourselves in, in that situation in 2020. And again, I come back to this idea of asking questions. It's all, ultimately it comes down to the questions we ask ourselves. If we find ourselves in a situation where we're feeling like, um, okay, this person I'm talking to is seems to be of complete opposite political beliefs than me. Um, how might I be wrong? How might what what might this person be feeling? Mm-hmm. You know that I what might this person be experiencing that I'm not? You know, um, you start to tap into empathy certainly, uh, but again, empathy is is empathy is about feeling what that person feels. Um, that's a that's a little bit more of a leap, you know. But you can certainly start um, having a, having a perspective without necessarily feeling. And, and curiosity. I think those curiosity, curiosity is the buttress to open-mindedness, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I say, you know, some people are more naturally curious than others. And most, most of those people are automatically open-minded. Um, so I, so I, the reason why I didn't put curiosity there is because I think open-mindedness can be accessed by almost anybody, you know, just by asking the right question. Can I just, let me give this person, the situation, this, um, this event mm-hmm. a chance. And, and let me start seeing what might be uh, what might be positive about that? Let me see it in a different light. You know, um, take myself out of my own perspective. If I'm not um, this, you know, you know, 47 year old, you know, male, former Navy SEAL author living in Virginia, if I'm not that person, right? Then how does this look? Yeah. Right? And that's those are really those are really powerful questions to ask, and and ones that can help open open your mind quite a bit. You know, so mm-hmm. it's a it's a proactive. It's a proactive approach to a passive, <laughs> to yeah, a yeah, passive yeah. environment. Yeah. I also think here we are in 2021, we did survive 2020. Mm-hmm. So no matter how difficult it was to reflect back on that and realize that maybe you have a little bit more resilience than perhaps you 100%, imagined. 100%, 100%. Right? Again, humans are designed to be resilient. That's why we've, that's why we've evolved and survived as a species. We're designed to be that way. We can, we can effectively, um, speed it up, uh-huh. and we can also effectively grow from it. That's you know transfer into anti fragility. Uh, but we are all here. We're all here. We're all um, operating. You know, we're all in our lives. Uh, admittedly, some some of us might be in, in worse positions than we were at the beginning of twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. But again, that you know that's some, sometimes you get thrown down the hill, and when you when you yeah. stand up and dust yourself off, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm way further down than I was before. Yeah. I got to climb again. But the fact is you can do it, you know, and we can do 2021. And I think, I think if we are effectively able to understand and, um, and dissect the lessons 2020 taught each one of us individually, 
uh, we are all in a position where we can crush 2021. I really believe that. I really do. Um, because we've been through some stuff that historically is so unique, you know, and that's, that's something to be, that's something to yeah. just give ourselves a quick pat on the back for. What is the process of, of performing that dissection though for somebody who's never done anything like that? Yeah, well, so the, so the first process is to put yourself in a in a sense in a in a, in a, a calm state, right? You don't you want to try to you want to try to um, uh, take emotion out of the equation. Very difficult, admittedly, right? But emotion tends to blur our. It's more limbic than it is than mm -hmm. it is forebrain. So it, it blurs our logical ability to dissect. So so to the extent possible, take the emotion out of it. Uh, from that position, begin to ask yourself some questions about it. Okay, um, what happened? Uh, what did I, how did I respond? Um, was that response uh, effective or ineffective? Mm -hmm. um, what can I learn from that? And, uh, and then how can I grow from it? And then how can I, and then, and then from that list, then you say, okay, how can I transfer that to, to, to what I wanna accomplish yeah. in 2021? That's That's, that, that sounds like uh, what we call the four step in AA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so. The inventory. So. Yeah. Um, is there, uh, in, in the process of learning about all these attributes, is there an attribute that comes to mind that's like the bastard stepchild, like the, the, over, the often overlooked and underappreciated attribute that you realize like, we should be paying more attention to this? Well, I mean, we already talked about narcissism and yeah. the reason is because narcissism can be so dangerous, but it can also be powerful. Um, no, I, I wouldn't say that, but I do. I, I think I'll, I, what I would what I would call out would be the three others that I talk about in the book. I, I, I the 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 four category or the five categories outline twenty two attributes, but the title of the book is twenty five uh -huh. attributes, right? So I talk about the others, which are uh, patience and competitiveness and um, fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. When I started to look at those as attributes, I began to discover that. Uh, they were unique from the other ones because while the other ones, if you put on a sliding scale, most of them, it could be argued that more is better. Obviously we could make an argument against that for mm -hmm. narcissism and things like that. But for the most part, you could say more is better. But those are the three, competitiveness, uh, patience, and fear of rejection. I wasn't getting the same answer, right? Um, impatience can be just as powerful as patience, you know? Mm -hmm. And there are very super successful people who are impatient and it works very well for them. Um, fear of rejection. Uh, this idea that I care what people think uh, to the extent that I'm gonna push myself beyond my batteries. This is, this is why a lot of SEALs do what they do. Some of us, I, I write in the book, I don't like heights, right? Skydiving was always a challenge yeah. for me. I skydived every time. I did hundreds of skydives because everybody else was and I was not going to be left behind, you know, and I was not gonna let mm -hmm. them down. I cared what they thought. This is why the guys who, the SEALs who don't like scuba diving still get underwater, right? Mm -hmm. So fear of rejection can be powerful. But uh, insouciance, you know, I don't care what other people think is just as powerful. We all know those iconoclasts who just broke from the pack and they didn't care what anybody thought, right? Those people are very powerful too, they can be. So so the idea is where you fall on the scales. The other one is competitiveness. You know, it, it's it's very often in the, peak performance world or the performance world that competitiveness is looked at as a very, very powerful trait to have. And, and that competitive gene is really essential. And I don't disagree with that. Uh -huh. um, what I disagree with is the implied corollary, which is non-competitiveness is bad, right? And I had to, a lot of the stuff I did a lot of self-reflection for, right? I am not a competitive person. <laughs> I never mm -hmm. have been. Um, when I played sports in high school, I really played two. I played uh, lacrosse, which was my main sport. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I did track basically to get in, in shape for lacrosse, right? Um, 
I loved the game and I loved playing, I loved the intricacy of the game. I loved the stick work. I loved that. I didn't really care if we won or lost. I didn't find myself emotionally moved either direction. Um, but being part of the team. Being part of the team. I liked was, all that stuff, yeah. um, but the winning or losing piece, I didn't. it didn't affect me the way it affected. I saw it was mm-hmm. affecting other people. And I thought for a while, I was like, oh boy, I think this might be a problem, right? Especially when I started thinking about SEAL training. It's like, I, I'm, not, I'm not competitive, is this a problem? What I realized is in SEAL training, it buds favors neither the competitive gene or the non-competitive oh, that's gene. That's interesting. Um, and, and one example of that are the two awards that are given at the end of BUDS. There are two awards given in the uh, BUDS class. One is the honor man. The honor man is the award for the, for the guy who has the best scores in everything. Fastest runs, best O-course time, fastest swims. It favors that competitive gene, right? You're, you're basically given an award for the best scores. The other reward is the fire and gut. Fire in the gut award is, is given to the person who showed the most grit and drive mm-hmm and perseverance through butts. Often that guy who wins that has some of the lowest scores, mm. right? Um, so you can't, you don't win the firing gut, it's earned. And it's based on a vote of the instructors and students. So what that told me was the SEAL teams, and I think any high performing team does extraordinarily well with both polarities. Right. Um, because right. the competitive mind is extraordinarily adept and powerful at looking at a situation, especially one with boundaries and rules and saying, okay, how can I win? in this situation. Uh-huh. Um, whereas the non-competitive mind, my mind says, I don't feel like playing that game. What's, a, what's the other game we can play that's different? You know, the hard what's a, worker what, game. What, what's, a, what's, a different, what's a different pathway? Yeah. I literally find myself looking at the pack of people and saying, I'm not really interested in, in, in competing. They're all doing great work. I'm gonna do this, you know? Mm. Um, when you're talking about special operations, that's powerful. I think when you're talking about business, that's very powerful because in, in business aspects, certainly there are times, there are aspects of business where you have to be competitive. Um, but there are also aspects of business where you thinking outside the box and kind of thinking about disruption and, and different things to do and not competitiveness uh, or non-competitiveness is really important. So, yeah. so both, I, what I say is that both, uh, for all three, both polarities can contribute to to high performance. And if you have teams that honor both, you have a really incredibly high performing team. And the, the, the last example I give on that is my wife and I, you know, I am typically a very patient person. Um, my wife is not a patient person, that's her default. Um, it works beautifully, Has worked, we've been married 20 years, it's worked beautifully, right? Because mm-hmm. when, when, the, when the situation requires patience, I get pushed to the front, right. I, I step up. I shouldn't say I get pushed, I step yeah. up to the front, right? Um, when the situation requires impatience, uh-huh. she steps up and takes lead, you know? And that's that, it's that dynamic swap. It's, that, it's dynamic subordination in terms of patience. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think that another application of the assessment tool is to figure out how people pair up you yeah. know, in, in dating, right? Like yeah. if, you, if you could, if you could um, figure out which, attributes match with other attributes in terms of compatibility yeah. in a relationship. Yeah, and I would just <laughs> offer if you're dating, give it a while. Yeah. Don't do just, it can't just be one right. or two dates, <laughs> you know? It has to be uh, shorter than, than marriage, of course, but, uh-huh. but longer than just right. a few dates, right? So right, you, have right, to, right. you have to, I don't know what that secret sauce is. I, I, again, I, I met my wife in Hawaii when I was, my first duty station was Hawaii. Uh-huh. I met her and we went on one date and then I left, I moved to Virginia. And so our relationship for the, for, for, for the first three months was all letters and phone calls. We literally wrote each other letters. And then she finally came and visited me a few times. And then I flew out six months later and proposed to her, right? So, so I- um, Wow. Yeah, and we've been married for 20 years. Oh so um, so there, 
so something went right there, you know. Uh -huh. um, so I can't I can't necessarily prescribe timelines <laughs> responsibly, uh -huh. you know. But yeah. um, uh, and then you, we know of people who you know well, they date for you, years. We, and we years have years. to make room for a little fairy dust in all of this, right? I agree. Yeah, I, you know, as yeah. much as much as we love Andrew Huberman, like there's a mystical aspect. Well, so so you're absolutely well. right. And what I'll tell you is, so so when I was a kid, um, I was just before high school, just getting into high school, my mom handed me a book called uh, The Key to Yourself. It was, it's written by Venice Bloodworth. It was written in the 50s. The Key to Yourself was a book that taught, that, that explained um, the law of attraction, you know, and, and visualizing mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And I was enamored with this stuff. I read that book over and over again. I began to, I began to read everything I could on the power of the subconscious mind and law of attraction, things like that. And I began to, and my brother too, and I began to practice it and start writing things down and visualizing and things like that. And it started working for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the first thing that happened was like, I, I, I wanted a Jeep. I wanted a Jeep CJ7, you know, as a high school car. And my brother did too. And so we visualized that and we, I could just picture myself driving it. Senior year, I got a, a Jeep, a 1984 Jeep CJ7. Powerful I, manifester. I, I, I drive it to this day. It's, it's at the airport right now waiting <laughs> for me. Um, I've kept uh, that car, right? Same thing happened when I went to um, uh, college and I wanted to get an ROTC scholarship. I began to visualize it. Same thing happened when I, you know, when I wanted to be a SEAL and they were, the selection was really tough and they, they were only selecting a few people. Um, so I, well, well I'm, I'm neither here to um, promote or purport the efficacy of metaphysics, right? I do believe that this, this, um, this idea of visualization of positive thinking of optimism works. Um, I, I, I believe there's, there's stuff yet to be studied in terms of mm. why it works. I would say one practical, just because I do like to try to put some science around some of it, is that if we just look at this 11 million bits of information that comes into our, into our, our systems every second, um, when we decide on something, when we write something down or decide on a goal, suddenly that's telling our brains, our forebrains, okay, notice things about that. You know, same thing when you buy a car and suddenly that car's everywhere. It's like, oh my God, did everybody buy this car? It's everywhere. Yeah. You hadn't noticed that car before. It's because you just put that in your forebrain. You basically told your forebrain out of that 11 million bits, if something along this line comes, I want you to notice it, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I think the power of visualization, I think the power of positive thinking, optimism, and I'm really a big believer on writing, writing things down. I think uh, go, writing goals down um, and as specifically as you can get, I think is a powerful evolution uh, because there's a there's a there's a, a merger of the physical and the mental. It kind of cements, and I've done yeah. that for I've it, done that my whole life. It makes life. it real. It makes it real. Yeah, and I, I I tell that I tell the story. I did that for my you know I I wrote down at one point. I was like I was like you know I I really want to meet the one of my dreams. I wrote down, and I still I, I had I had these. Um, small uh, notepad sheets, the real small ones. And I started writing down just what I thought my perfect woman, this description uh -huh. of my perfect woman. And it took about four of these things to write down all the things. Um, and I, I just wrote it down and put it away, I put it in a drawer. And I remember the, the date that I was on my first date with my wife. And I remember we were talking and in the back of my mind, I was like, oh my God, I, these things are kind of clicking off, you know? And I was like, you know, and it just worked out. I still have those sheets, by the way. And I showed it to her, you know, uh -huh. years later, I said this and she was, you know, blown away. But I think, you know, understanding that, getting that clear in your head helps put that, lodge that into your, into your brain. Powerful creator, Rich Devinny. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, all right, we got to land this plane, but I'm not going to let you go without, uh, without asking you, I know you can't speak to the specifics of any of the operations that you've been on, but I'm interested if, 
you could share any experiences that you've had that that you're comfortable sharing that maybe shifted your perception while serving or kind of informed the work that you do now. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'll I'll tell you one story, um, and uh, and nothing. You know, it's a it's an operation, and nothing happened, right? Uh, nothing uh-huh. combat happened. So we were. We were we were tasked with a uh, with an operation where we so we we got some, let me back up we got some intelligence on something that was going to happen in a in the village during the during a, during the daytime. Now um, in Afghanistan or this was in Iraq, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, so when we so when you get something like that, you say, okay, how can I? What do we want to affect, and how can we affect that? Um, sometimes that means okay, we're going to do what's called a, a remain over day operation. So that what that means is you're going to go you're going to find a place on the map, you're going to go in at night. You're gonna put yourself there in a position where you can watch and affect if needed. And you just sit there all day and just watch. It's kind of like a recon mission, but you uh-huh. have a hopefully an objective if something happens. Um, and then, you know, affected if affected. So we had one of these things. We thought we, we had intelligence that something was gonna happen. So we looked at it and said, okay, this, it was in a village in Iraq. And, um, and we picked a compound uh, that we were in. Okay, we'll, we'll sit here, it's good visibility. We can put everybody, hide, no one knows we're there. So we go in. Uh, in the wee hours of the morning, it's still dark. We come in and we descend into this compound silently. Um, of course, these people have no clue that, <laughs> that we're coming, you know, and now we're going to be there all day. So we're, it's, they are all multi generational houses. So you have grandmas down to babies. So we're making sure everybody's positioned, all the civilians are safe. Uh, we're positioning our guys so they can see all that stuff. I'm in charge of the mission on the OIC. And, and while I'm walking around, I'm noticing there's this little girl. She's following me around. This little girl was probably six years old, six or seven. She's following me around. She's trying to tell me something, but I can't. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm working, so I can't stop to to address it just yet. But once everything settled down, I uh, I brought the turp over. I said, "Hey, can you tell me what this little girl's saying?" And so he, he asked her, and she says, uh, she tells him, and he says, "Yeah, she said uh, you remind her of some uh, movie star, some Iraqi movie star, and she wants to know if you can." Play a game with her if you want to play mm-hmm. a game with her, and so I said, sure. You know, we, you know those those types of missions can often be very boring until something happens. So mm-hmm. we knew we we were in the long haul, just kind of settled in. Yeah, sure. So she she runs into our room, she grabs this game, she comes out, and um, we start playing. And the only way I, I don't know, I mean, this is you know this this uh, this ages ages us out a little bit, but I don't know if you remember a game called Tribulation. But there, this is this game was a, it's a math game. It's like you have numbers and you have to. You get this. You get a number, and then you have to find out how to multiply to it, or whatever. It was mm-hmm. kind of an Iraqi version of this. It was. A, it was something having to do with math. And we start playing this game, and two things happen that I notice. Um, the first thing I notice is that um, the Terp got up and left. I didn't even notice he left. Okay, because now it's just two human beings having mm-hmm. an experience. I'm just playing the game with this little girl. Um, then the th- second thing I noticed was this girl was incredibly smart. She was. I mean, she was kicking my ass at this thing. I mean, she was incredibly bright and and, and smart and just really with it. And so we play this game, and uh, and you know throughout the day, back, you know she, she points at which I have to get up and work. You know uh-huh. I work, and then she comes back. And then what we were looking to have happen never happened. It ended up being a pretty boring day. Um, so we we play periodically throughout the day. Now the sun goes down. We wait till it's you know it's time, and then we're getting ready to to, to leave and go back to our our pickup zone where the helicopters can get us. So we get everything together. We're up and moving, working. This girl's following me around again, trying to tell tell me something. Finally, we're getting ready to step out and, and leave. And I bring the turp over and I say, hey, can you, can you tell me what she's saying? He asked her and, and uh, he says, hey, she's wondering if you can come back tomorrow and play with her. You know? And at that point, you know, you, you know, I realized, you, know, you ask yourself, okay, 
is the truth the best thing here right now? And so I got, I remember getting on uh, one of my knees and I put my hands on her shoulders and I said, uh, tell her that if I, if I'm ever back here again, I will, I promise I'll come play with her, you know? Um, and he told her and that seemed to satisfy her. I hugged her and we left. And I never went back, you know, and I'm glad I never went back because if, if spec ops guys have to go to the same place twice, then, you know, Something's it's probably wrong. not a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so when I, you know, as I've gone through, as I went through my career and I, you know, have processed it, I realized, you know, I, everything that we did out there, you know, um, with, I with my troop and team, I have no regrets. We acted honorably, we acted with integrity. I, lose, I don't lose sleep, I'm fine with everything, which I'm fortunate. I know that's, that's not the case mm-hmm. for everybody. Um, because war is tough. Uh, I think about, I see that girl's face a lot, like all the time. I can still picture her face and I wonder if she's okay. I wonder how she's doing. I wonder where she is. Um, and I wonder, you know, and she was so smart, you know, and I wonder, did she ever, was she ever able to affect that intelligence, that, that talent, that just the beauty inside of her. And then I wonder about all these other kids. You know, it doesn't have to be a town in Iraq. It can be a, it could be a kid in LA. It can be a kid in, you know, in New York. I mean, how many of those f- kids are out there that aren't, they don't have the resources um, or some of the tools to be able to start realizing their own potential. And mm-hmm. so I, I think a lot about, I, I call it finding Einstein. Like where's our next Einstein? This girl could, could, could have been or could be our next Einstein. Mm-hmm. I am certainly not it, you know, but I'm, yeah. I'm really, really, um, uh, I get excited about human potential. You know, this idea that we as humans can imagine something that doesn't exist and then, and then make it, bring it into an existence, you know? Um, and so that type of, and, and we do that, and that, that type of evolution, that type of process is, is just very inspiring to me. And those people who can help us evolve are inspiring as well. And so, mm. so that's really, for me, it's all about, it's about human potential, human performance. Can I think about things I've learned to help people start to explore their own potential, find their own potential? If they're, if they're parents or if, they are, or if they're in the lives of young people, um, can they help those young people start to explore? Can we start drawing out some of those Einsteins? Because ultimately we're, we can do great things, you know? Um, and there's some, there some leaders, and I don't know if this little girl was yeah. one of them, but that's, it yeah, it just it, it seems like something that should be a social mandate. I mean, you would have to suspect there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people walking the earth who are brilliantly talented in some way or another, who are never able to tap into the right vein in order to become fully expressed in yeah. that. And it's almost a miracle when that person who has that talent is able to figure out how to uh, you know get the resources to be fully expressed in that like yeah. that that's almost the fluke when it should be the other way around. That's exactly right. And, and you're dealing with a, you know a, a kid in a small village in a remote part of the world. The chances that that person is going to find you know what they what they need to support them in that expression is extremely limited. It really is. And and the, the key is and at least in my from my perspective is let's start with ourselves. We have so much inside of ourselves. I mean if if, if if an average guy, I had an average upbringing, I was an average student, I was an average athlete. If I can, if an average guy like me can- All you SEALs you know. guys with this average stuff. <laughs> yeah, come on but I mean, if you, if you can affect, <laughs> you know, I mean, we're all yeah. at some, in some ways, unless we're Mozart, we're all average at least uh-huh. a little bit, right? But if I can affect, you know, again, environment matters certainly, uh, but if I can start digging into my own attributes, can, can people start to think about, hey, it can start inside, you know, and um, it always does. It always does. And how do we how do we best understand ourselves first, 
Um, but you know, you need to you need to understand the engine before you start tweaking it and, and putting putting high mm-hmm. speed stuff on it, right? So um, so I get I sometimes I get frustrated with all these gimmicks and and hacks. And say, oh, do this, do that. You know, it's like, well, if you don't understand your own engine first, then you might put something on it that's going to blow it. You yeah, know, um, you're just revving it in it, park. Yeah, you're revving it in park. So so what are some ways we can begin to understand ourselves and the best news of all is we all have uncertainty and challenge and strife in our lives. And those are wonderful crucibles inside of which we can start understanding ourselves. Yeah. And the good news is 2021 is here. 2021 is that. here. Congratulations. Right? <laughs> you got a whole year yeah. to, uh, to dive into that hole. Yeah. And the best way to begin that process is to pick up Rich's new book, The Attributes. You can go to theattributes.com. You can you can check out the assessment tool, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the assessment tool uh, to start. partnered with Typeform, awesome company, and then they helped us put it together. Uh, assessment tool is free, so so while I would recommend, definitely uh, the book will will break down the attributes for you, so you can understand exactly what they are. Um, the assessment tool will help you get a sense of where you stand, um, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna I've thrown some stuff on there to help uh, guide you in developing the mm-hmm. ones you want to develop too. So cool. uh, so yeah, enjoy. So. Right on. Um, book comes out January 18th. January 26. 26. All yeah. right. Uh, pre-order it now. And pre-order it now, and I will say we're gonna we're gonna do something special. If we if you pre-order the book, you'll get a ticket to a live stream that I'm gonna do with Huberman. All right, and we're gonna right. we're gonna talk about the book. We're gonna ask questions. We'll, uh, we'll talk about the book. We'll allow people to ask questions and have a conversation about it. Um, but we'll also give a sneak preview onto some of the stuff he and I have been working on for the last four years. So that's um, very cool. Yeah. That's worth the price of the book right there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, sure. that'll be a that'll be offered if you if you pick up a pre order and you'll get your your pre order uh, purchase will give you a ticket to that. So. Excellent. Um, great talking to you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Come back and talk to me again sometime. I appreciate. It. Thanks for having. All right, Rich, good luck with the book. Thanks. Peace. What did I tell you? 2021 is already better than 2020. Thank you, Rich. That was awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Now, put it to work. Before we go, Rich's book, The Attributes, is available for pre-order now, so pick that up. Check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com for more on Mr. Davini, plus links and resources related to everything we talked about. And again, Rich will be doing a live event with neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Huberman, a podcast favorite. For everybody who pre-orders the book, you'll also get a free copy of the Courage chapter upon pre-order. All information on all of that is available on the book's website at theattributes.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media is of course always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition was created by Blake Curtis, portraits by Allie Rogers and Davey Greenberg, graphic elements courtesy of Jessica Miranda, and our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis. Thanks, I love you guys. Right now, I'm taking a little bit of time off. I will be out of pocket for a big chunk of January, but not to worry, the show goes on, including 
an amazing conversation next week with Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker, Brian Fogel. The man behind Icarus is back with a powerful new film coming out called The Dissident. It's all about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. It is gripping and our conversation is one you're not gonna wanna miss. So until then, welcome to 2021. Together, let's make it the best year ever. Peace.